In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is downplaying the criticism after lawmakers voted to lift some of the Israeli court system's checks on government's power. Coming up, Netanyahu talks about what he plans to do with the contentious law. Today is Thursday, July 27th, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, veterans reflect today on the 70th anniversary of the armistice that stopped the Korean War. What's next for U.S. ally Niger in West Africa? There are concerns in the U.S. that the coup yesterday could disrupt U.S. counterterrorism efforts in Africa. Niger has been a key Western ally in a region where some of its neighbors have weakened or severed Western ties. Also ahead of you of the Women's World Cup from a soccer bar in Portland, Maine. It's 401 News Headlines and the forecast are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. As many as 170 million people across the United States are bearing a heat wave that's become so intense that President Biden says no one can deny the impact of climate change anymore. Faced with heat index values well above 100 degrees through this Saturday in large portions of the country, local leaders are advising constituents to stay hydrated and limit their exposure outdoors whenever possible. Once again, highlighting the plight of some of the most vulnerable populations, such as people without homes. The White House is attempting to expand labor protections during the extreme heat. NPR's Barbara Sprunt has that story. President Biden is directing the Department of Labor to issue a hazard alert for dangerous conditions in industries like agriculture and construction, where workers face a greater risk of injury and death from extreme heat. For the farm workers who have to harvest crops in the dead of night to avoid the high temperatures, or farmers who risk losing everything they planted for the year, or the construction workers who literally risk their lives working all day in blazing heat, and in some places don't even have the right to take a water break. That's outrageous. Phoenix Mayor Kate Gallego spoke about the record high temperatures and the impact they've had on her community and called on Congress to give the president the ability to declare heat a disaster. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, the White House. Former President Donald Trump could be facing another federal indictment. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports special counsel Jack Smith and a grand jury have been investigating attempts by Trump at an allies to reverse the results of the 2020 election. In order to indict, the grand jury would have to find probable cause that Trump broke the law. In a post on his social media site, Trump said his lawyers have had a productive meeting with the Justice Department, explaining in detail that he did nothing wrong. He also added that his legal team has not received notice of an indictment. Trump is already facing federal criminal charges in New York and Florida. The Justice Department is launching an investigation into the city of Memphis and its police department nearly seven months after five black officers fatally beat a black motorist. Here's NPR's Debbie Elliott. The Justice Department says the pattern or practice investigation will focus on several areas. The Memphis Police Department's use of force, its stop searches and arrests, and whether officers engage in discriminatory policing and dangerously aggressive traffic enforcement. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark of the Civil Rights Division says even in the majority black city of Memphis, police may be disproportionately targeting black drivers. The civil investigation is separate from a federal criminal civil rights probe of the officers involved in Tyree Nichols' beating death. They have pleaded not guilty to second-degree murder and other charges. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. 
It's NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A tornado touched down in New Hampshire this afternoon. It happened about 3 o'clock just east of Keene in the town of Roxbury, New Hampshire. The National Weather Service says the weather spotters there first found it. In Massachusetts, a severe thunderstorm watch is in effect until 8 o'clock tonight. By the way, no word yet on damage or injuries in New Hampshire. As we said, fast-moving storms are expected to move into our area this afternoon. WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyce reports the National Weather Service has posted a severe thunderstorm watch. Watch means conditions are favorable for damaging thunderstorms to develop. A warning means a storm is imminent. So be prepared to get inside, seek shelter should you need to, damaging wind gusts, localized flooding, frequent lightning, hail, and even a low risk of a tornado possible. The action will continue to move through from northwest to southeast and weaken after 8 p.m., Only the Cape and Islands are excluded from the severe thunderstorm watch that's in effect, as Danielle said, from now until 8 o'clock tonight. A new poll of Massachusetts voters finds strong support for a statewide rent control policy, but that enthusiasm changes depending on certain factors. Here's WBOR's Walter Wuthman. The poll from the Conservative Fiscal Alliance Foundation finds nearly 60 percent of voters would support a policy that stops landlords from raising rents too high. The numbers track with an earlier survey by a more liberal group. But pollster Jim Eltringham says support erodes if rent control is framed as government control or has a negative impact on building upkeep. And that's where we started to see a flip. We see, you know, 47 percent oppose rent control and we start to see dips across party lines. The survey of 750 likely voters was conducted last week. It has a margin of error of 3.6 percent. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Both dry and wet weather taking turns this afternoon and evening. We could see some strong storms pushed along by a gusty wind today, some lightning as well. Could have more storms overnight tonight. Cloudy skies lasting through the night, about 74 for a low. Tomorrow, no rain in the forecast right now, just oppressive heat once again. Sunny skies topping out at 92 degrees. For Saturday, wet again with showers and thunderstorms. Also some sunshine, about 90. Sunday, relief. Sunny with highs about 80. It's 407. WBUR supporters include Policy Genius, an online marketplace committed to modernizing the life insurance industry. Agents are available to compare life insurance quotes from multiple companies side by side. Learn more at policygenius.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. To Israel now, where a new law strips the country's Supreme Court of a key power to override high-level appointments by the prime minister. The measure is contentious. It passed this week despite pleas from President Biden and despite protests in Israeli streets that drew hundreds of thousands of people. Now, for the first time, the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, tells NPR what he expects to do with that law. Let me bring in NPR's Daniel Estrin from Tel Aviv. Hi there, Daniel. Hi, Mary Louise. So Netanyahu spoke to our NPR colleague, Steve Enskeep, and we can hear their full their full conversation tomorrow on Morning Edition. But since you were listening in, give us the headlines. Sure. He told NPR that with this new law passed, he expects to reappoint his ally, a convicted felon, as a cabinet member or a senior member of his government. So let me explain that. This year, the court said that it was, quote, extremely unreasonable for Arya Derry to serve as a government minister because he was recently convicted on tax offenses. Mm-hmm. But the law that passed this week stripped the Supreme Court from ruling on that basis. And so um, our colleague, Stephen Skeep, asked this of Netanyahu. Will you reappoint him then? 
Well, you know, it depends what happens, of course, with the legislation. We have to see. But if it stands, you know, I expect it to happen. I don't expect, I don't know if the court will actually strike this down. Now, what Netanyahu is saying there is that if the Supreme Court does not repeal this new law, he expects to reappoint tax felon Arya Derry. This was the speculation, and Netanyahu never said it publicly and clearly until now. One legal expert told me that this kind of statement from Netanyahu could affect whether the Supreme Court does strike down this law. The court has been critical about passing this kind of major law to solve a narrow personal matter. Okay. Um, meanwhile, let me turn you to another personnel matter. Um, all these questions have been swirling about whether Netanyahu will use this change in the law to dismiss someone else as attorney general. Did he say to Steve whether he will? He did say that for the first time he said he will not dismiss the attorney general. It's not even it's not on the table and it won't happen. Now, this new law could actually help Netanyahu dismiss the attorney general or strip her of her powers. Her office oversees the prosecution of Netanyahu's corruption trial. He could replace her with someone more favorable who could dismiss his trial. And many members of Netanyahu's own government say they want her fired. I asked legal expert Mordechai Kremnitzer from the Israel Democracy Institute about Netanyahu's pledge to NPR that his law has nothing to do with the attorney general or his own corruption trial. And this legal expert says he doubts it. It's clear that it has to do with the trial of Netanyahu, as well as it has to do with the wish of this government to get rid of the rule of law. Daniel, as we said earlier, President Biden was urging Netanyahu not to do this, not to pass this law. He's done it anyway. How does Netanyahu justify that? Yeah, Biden was urging Netanyahu not to pass the law without broad consensus because of threats to Israel's security. Military reservists have threatened not to serve in protest of the law. Uh Netanyahu said it's not affecting our national defense. We're hearing actually a different tune from Israeli defense officials. Okie doke. NPR's Daniel Estrin, thank you. You're welcome. And we will hear more from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his interview with Steve on Morning Edition tomorrow. First, Russia wiped out Ukraine's navy. Now, Russia is blocking Ukraine's critical grain exports through the Black Sea. As Ukraine struggles to rebuild its navy and fight back, NPR's Greg Myrie got a ride on one of its few boats. I'm on a Ukrainian naval boat in the Dnipro River just off Kyiv. It's only 34 feet long and it carries just a few sailors, but it packs a punch. We have a machine guns, uh, we have a grenade launchers. Mihailo is a naval officer on board and, like most military members, gives just one name. I would say that this is a classic uh, Riva Petrel boat, one of those uh, you've seen in the uh, Francis Ford Coppola movies. He says, think apocalypse now with an updated boat. The U.S. has provided about a dozen of these vessels because Russia seized or destroyed much of Ukraine's navy when it first invaded in 2014. Russia largely finished off the Navy at the start of its full-scale invasion last year. Ukraine is starting to rebuild with these patrol boats. But Russia's control of the Black Sea means Moscow can keep Ukraine from exporting its abundant grain. And since July 17th, that's exactly what Russia's been doing. Here's the commander of Ukraine's Navy, Vice Admiral Alexei Nishpapa, speaking to sailors. We have to break Russia's control. The sea is free for everyone, and we will make it so, as it should be, free for all countries.
Grain exports are critical to Ukraine's economy and to the food supply in countries throughout Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Without Ukraine's exports, global grain prices are on the rise. The Russians have threatened to sink these civilian bulk carriers. I believe that's egregious. James Fogo is a retired U.S. admiral. But what can you do about it when you don't have a significant naval presence in the Black Sea? That's a problem. It seems hard to believe now, but the Russian and Ukrainian naval fleets operated side by side in Crimea's port of Sevastopol from the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 until Russia seized Crimea in 2014. The following year, 2015, Fogo went to Ukraine for NATO-Ukrainian naval exercises in Odessa, Ukraine's other big Black Sea port. We tried to uh, assist the Ukrainians with rebuilding their navy. It was a big exercise. It grew to a very big exercise, very successful, lots of allies and partners. But when Russia invaded last year, Ukraine scuttled its last warship rather than risk it being captured by Russia. Like a knife to the heart, can you imagine a presidential order from President Zelensky to the commanding officer to scuttle the flagship of the Ukrainian Navy? That must have been really, really tough. He says Ukraine will never be free of Russian domination without some sort of Black Sea fleet. But it can't truly rebuild with the war ongoing. So Ukraine is resisting from land. Last year, a Ukrainian missile, fired from the mainland, sank the Russian flagship in the Black Sea, the Moskva. Again, Ukraine's naval chief, Vice Admiral Nish Papa. The Russian aggressor thought they could rule freely in the Black Sea, but they were wrong. Since then, Russia's navy has been wary of getting too close to the coast and Ukrainian missile range. This caution created enough space for Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, to venture out recently to Snake Island, a tiny outpost 20 miles off Ukraine's Black Sea coast. Zelensky made the risky trip in a small inflatable boat. His only apparent protection? A couple of other small inflatable boats. Back on the Dnipro River in Kyiv, the commander of the patrol boat, Anton, explains why he's here after 20 years on the high seas where he worked on massive commercial ships. Uh, I was just a merchant captain. I was a captain of a big vessel, bulk carrier. I was in the United States of America lots of time. His favorite place to work is Alaska, he says, summer or winter. Now, he only wants to be in Ukraine. I always can find a job. I can find other vessel, but I cannot find another motherland. I have only one Ukraine. So right here, right now, is the best place to be. Though it wouldn't hurt if Ukraine got some bigger boats. Greg Myrie, NPR News, on the Dnipro River in Ukraine. Millions of people tuned in last night to watch the U.S. play the Netherlands in the Women's World Cup. Some of those fans were gathered at a soccer bar in Portland, Maine, and reporter Carly Peruccio was among them. Dozens of people wait in line for drinks outside a bar called the Portland Zoo. Mark Miller is bartending. He's an owner here, and he's stunned by the size of the crowd. Yeah, this is one of those classic nights where you're like, ah, maybe it'll be Wednesday, it'll be chill. It won't be too crazy. And then you just get hit with like a three-hour line. <laughs> I mean, what's this is not your normal Wednesday, is that what I'm hearing? Not at all. And uh, once again, I'm always amazed at the women's World Cup turnout versus the men's off the opening games. I mean, how does this compare? Like double. This compares to like the, like the final, like towards the finals of the World Cup. 
I don't know how to manage it. There are a lot of millennials here, a few Gen Zers sprinkled in. It's about an even split of women and men. Brian Plofsky is among the crowd. He's wearing a U.S. women's jersey. I think that there's something pretty special about the way that the teams work together and move. The flow of the game feels more like water, where the flow of a men's game is more like lightning. And I appreciate the flow of the water more. There are high expectations for the U.S. tonight. But in the 17th minute, Jill roared from the Netherlands scores. There's some language not suitable for the radio. The U.S. is down one nothing. But I think they need to slow the game down. Erica Plofsky shakes her head in disappointment. And, like, they need to just, like, work with each other because it seems like they got into panic mode. Given that they're supposedly the number one team in the world, we should be playing better than this. That's Henry Trotter standing uh, in the crowd. I don't know. There's still 30 minutes. We could, we could do it. In the 61st minute, the U.S. wins a corner. <laughs> U.S. midfielder Rose Lavelle steadies herself for the kick. Well, I almost jumped up on the table in front of me. That's Allison Murray. The USA finally scored, and it was Lindsey Horan, and that is the jersey that I'm wearing. And it was a header, and it was gorgeous, and I loved it. As the clock ticks on, good chances become missed opportunities. When the U.S. is called for a foul, a fan makes an inappropriate gesture to the TV in frustration. In the end, the come-from-behind win wasn't meant to be. U.S. won, Netherlands won. The mood is disappointment, but not total despair. Well, was good. I'm glad we got, we got the comeback. Chris Barnes knows Team USA's work isn't done. But now I have to wake up on Tuesday at 3 a.m. That's when the U.S. team takes on Portugal. At that hour, people probably won't be watching from the Portland Zoo. For NPR News, I'm Carly Perruccio in Portland, Maine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on WBUR this afternoon. Coming up in about 20 minutes, the story of an Alabama town that has two mayors. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. So much for the historic Dow rally. Today, the index dropped nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P lost just about the same seven-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq fell a little over one-half percent. Marketplace has details coming up at 6.30. It's now 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a flexible and relevant degree that helps expand your network and further your career bc.edu slash analytics. And Coolidge Corner Sidewalk Shopping Event, this Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 4. Enjoy an afternoon of shopping and dining in historic Coolidge Corner. There's some severe weather around the region this afternoon. In New Hampshire, a tornado touched down just east of Keene in the town of Roxbury, New Hampshire. No reports yet of any damage. Most of Massachusetts is under a severe thunderstorm watch until 8 o'clock tonight. National Weather Service meteorologist Joe Della Carpini tells us there is a severe thunderstorm right now in the western part of the state. They're approaching kind of the Springfield-Westfield area, and they have had a history of producing some wind damage. We've had some reports of some uh, trees down onto wires in the Berkshires. So as these storms continue to head east, we're going to be watching um, for the potential of severe weather throughout the rest of the, of the Commonwealth from Worcester into greater Boston. 
The storms are expected to hit Boston by about 6 o'clock tonight, but we will keep an eye on the forecast for you. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations, including associations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. It can be hard to raise awareness for something that's often silent and looks healthy. Beginning workout. But for some boys and young men, that intense workout could be a sign of an eating disorder, masked behind muscle building. It's hard to quantify how prevalent this is, but here's one data point. A recent study of young men in Minnesota found that more than 50% reported changing their eating habits to increase muscle size or tone. Now, to be clear, not all of these men have an eating disorder, but researchers say some may go on to develop unhealthy behaviors related to diet and exercise. Jason Nagata is one of the authors of the study. I do think that it is a really fine line because in general, in moderation, physical activity and exercise can be good for your health, but there's a slippery slope where a subset of young men will really take it to the extreme Nagata is a pediatrician at the University of California, San Francisco, who specializes in eating disorders among adolescents. We actually know that uh, the idealized masculine body ideal is to become bigger and bulkier. And in order to achieve that, many of them are engaging in muscle enhancing behaviors. Behaviors like strict dieting, compulsive exercise, use of steroids all aimed at developing a lean, chiseled look, like a professional athlete or a movie star. I used to love the Rocky films and, you know, all these kind of ideas of that's what a man's supposed to be. George Mycock's experience with eating disorders began in his early teens. He grew up 40 miles south of Manchester, England, and went out for rugby at age 13, hoping to make his sports-loving father proud. But he fractured his spine. He couldn't work out for a year. He gained weight and struggled with a lost sense of identity. And for the next five years, losing weight and putting on muscle became priority number one. What I found was that the more I lost weight, the faster I lost weight, the more praise I got from people. Uh, No one really cared how I was doing it. I was basically starving myself and exercising multiple times a day. Mike Hawk now says his diet and exercise regimen was unsustainable, and it took a toll on his mental health. He underwent treatment and is now working toward a Ph.D., focusing on men's physical and mental health. Andrea Vizana sees patients like George Mycock in her practice. She's a clinical psychologist at New York University who specializes in the treatment of eating disorders. And she says that for many years, eating disorders have been underdiagnosed in men. We used to think that there was about a 10 to 1 uh, female to male ratio. 
If you do population-based studies, you actually find that the prevalence is much closer, that it's really only about uh, one male to every two or three females. I asked her about the challenges she sees when it comes to working with boys and young men. You know, one of the things that we're always kind of working against is these stereotypes, these pressures that people from a sociocultural perspective are trying to overcome. The fact that people might actually get more positive attention from being muscular and having an athletic physique and that there are certain, you know, rewards that come along with that. But I think that, that what's oftentimes underestimated and, and might be neglected altogether are the costs that come along with trying to achieve that ideal and not only achieve it, but to maintain it over time. If you could, could you give us a couple of examples of the types of short term and long range costs that you're talking about? Sure. Well, one of the short term costs is uh, some of the social impairment that ends up happening, right? It becomes um, too fearful to go out and eat with your friends, that all your friends might be really enjoying each other's company at a restaurant. Um, But for a person with an eating disorder, that would be a a very difficult challenge, right? Um, There's likely job ramifications where you are tired and fatigued. You don't have that nutrition. And over time, that's going to take a toll on your work performance. It certainly will take a toll on your family life. If you're a male and you're not just focused on being thin, but also trying to be muscularly fit, it means going to the gym all the time, right? It means that you're spending time developing your muscles rather than developing your life. I want to ask you a little bit about patient volume. In recent years, are you seeing an increase of patients and particularly um, boys and young men who are coming in seeking treatment for eating disorders? Yes, I actually am. You know, COVID really was such a stressor. And the way that people tried to manage that was sometimes, you know, through these maladaptive behaviors and having more time. I've seen probably more men now than ever before. It's still a smaller number than the number of females that I'm seeing. But I have teenage boys. I have adult men. Uh, I definitely have a, a fair number of men more than I have ever had before. Well, why do you think that is that you're seeing more men than ever before? I I mean, I find that striking to hear. Right. Well, I think that there's a better understanding of eating disorders. Um, We get a fair number of referrals from coaches who are concerned about their players um, who might be excessively exercising. And they just recognize, oh, this isn't just like a female disorder anymore, that actually men are, are susceptible to this as well. As you were treating men and boys with eating disorders, I'm curious, when you think about the population that you're interacting with, do you see disparities among the types of men and boys who are coming into your clinic and seeking help? Sure. I mean, that's tricky in, in that the clinic where I work, um, we're not in network with any insurance providers, mm. right? So Understood. the automatically, um, the population that I'm seeing is skewed towards uh, upper income, at least middle income with good insurance individuals, right? So in some ways, I might not be the best uh, person to speak to um, or maybe I am the best person to speak to about the disparities because, yes, I'm, I definitely see disparities in the type of people um, who I am treating. Uh, you know, we know that eating disorders affect all different races, all different ethnicities. Um, we know that high income, low income people, all of them are, are at risk for having eating disorders. It's just who is coming into the clinic. I understand that you've worked in this field for more than two decades. So I am just really curious 
How has your experience treating patients with eating disorders changed over that span of time? Sure. The pressure that we see men under now um, to try to achieve this ideal has really increased. And I think, you know, social media has certainly played a role in that. I think it would be that's undeniable to think that the fitness challenges, right, that are Mm -hmm. on TikTok or um, on Instagram that you're seeing and the health challenges, um, you know, are, are kind of increasing um, the importance that, that people are placing on their appearance, whether that's right or wrong. So really trying to push back against that and help people to not buy into that is a really important part of both prevention work as well as treatment. That's Andrea Vizana, psychologist and clinical co-director of the Eating Disorder Service at New York University. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, weather and food from the nation's breadbasket. Dry weather in the Great Plains and Midwest has choked out crops, but recent rain has been a relief. Climatologists predict that cooler, wetter weather may help loosen the region's drought that has lasted years. In the forecast, some sunshine in parts of the region, ominous clouds elsewhere, often on thunderstorms this afternoon and evening. Some of the rain should be heavy, gusty winds blowing it around. Could have more storms overnight tonight, about 74 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, we're not expecting any rain, just oppressive heat once again. Sunny skies topping out at 92, but feeling closer to 100. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at zevin.com. Frances Haugen tried to fix Facebook's misinformation problem from within. 300 people had spent a year preparing to make sure that there wasn't blood on the streets when the election came. When Facebook dissolved civic integrity right after the 2020 election, that's when I realized Facebook was not going to be able to change on its own. I'm Tiziana Deering from Facebook Engineer to Whistleblower. That's on point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Russia's president is promising to deliver large, no-cost shipments of grain to six African countries after abandoning a wartime deal that allowed grain shipments from Ukraine to several developing countries. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says this agreement will do little to avert a global food crisis and could cause more price spikes. While we would welcome any actual contributions to alleviate global food insecurity or to paraphrase what U.N. Secretary General Gutierrez said just now, just moments ago, and I quote, a handful of donation to some countries cannot replace, it cannot replace the millions and millions of tons of grain export uh, that help stabilize food prices around the world. The announcement from Vladimir Putin today came during the opening of a two-day Russia-Africa summit. Putin is trying to bolster ties with the continent of more than one billion people. The U.S. Census Bureau says it's planning to conduct two major field tests for the next national headcount before 2030. 
As NPR's Hansi Lewong tells us, the Bureau says the tests are designed to help produce an accurate tally of the country's population that will be used to redistribute political maps and federal funding. The first major field test for the 2030 census is scheduled to take place on April 1st, 2026, four years before the next official census day, and a full practice run is slated for 2028. The Census Bureau says it's planning to try out its new systems and ways of trying to get a count of every person living in the U.S., as the Constitution requires once a decade. But a key challenge facing the Bureau is uncertainty in funding for the next headcount. For the 2020 census, budgeting issues forced the agency to cancel planned field tests for reaching Spanish speakers and rural residents, populations that the Bureau has historically undercounted. Hansi Luang, NPR News. Stocks finish lower across the board on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Thunderstorms are moving through the western part of the state. The Springfield area is under severe thunderstorm warning right now. There are storms in Springfield, also Holyoke and the Westfield area. At Barnes Airport in Westfield, there is a wind gust reported of 65 miles an hour today. National Weather Service meteorologist Joe Della Carpini says severe storms are expected to hit Boston this evening. 6 to 8 p.m. is really our main window for thunderstorms. And these storms will be capable of producing um, strong wind gusts, um, could bring down tree branches, maybe even some trees, um, as well as some brief torrential rain. So you have to watch out for some street flooding as well. And drivers are reminded to avoid flooded roadways. Flights out of Logan Airport that are headed to New York are delayed. Thunderstorms in the New York area are causing major delays at JFK, LaGuardia, and Newark airports. Boston flights to JFK are more than three hours now behind schedule. Following a six-month national search, the Huntington Theater today announced it has selected a new executive director. WBR's Cristela Guerra has more. Christopher Minnelli will become only the second top administrative leader in the company's 41-year history. He joins the Huntington at a crucial time as it looks at the next phase of its renovation and expansion. And so I'm really excited to think about how we're dreaming of a public space that's not just for the audience that we have now, but for the audience that we're envisioning of the future. Minnelli says he's excited to get to work, but his initial plan is to take a step back and listen. He will wrap up his position as executive director of Jiva Theatre Center in Rochester in the coming months and start at the Huntington in November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. Governor Maura Healey has filed a second interim state budget. It allows Massachusetts to meet its payroll and keep the state running through August. Healey's first interim budget expires at the end of the day Monday. Temporary measures are needed because state lawmakers still have not approved a budget for fiscal year 2024, which began on July 1st. Once again, the forecast, high heat out there right now. Look for some thunderstorms to move in sometime over the next several hours, especially between 6 and 8 tonight. A wind-driven rain as well. Could have more storms overnight tonight, about 74 degrees for low. Then tomorrow, supposedly dry, but hot again. Sunshine topping out at about 92 degrees. 89 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from USPS with Ground Advantage, the new two to five day package shipping service. Ground Advantage details are at usps.com advantage. The United States Postal Service, delivering for America. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The overnight coup in Niger is the ninth coup or attempted power grab in just over three years in West and Central Africa, a region increasingly gripped by political instability and insecurity. NPR Africa correspondent Emmanuel Akinwotu reports from neighboring Nigeria that the day followed a familiar pattern. 24 hours in Niger that has followed a familiar script. The late night announcement on state television. Where soldiers declare that the military have taken over the government. While international allies condemn the coup, on the streets, protesters hail it. A few hundred people gathered in front of the National Assembly in the capital Niamey this morning to show their support. Some demanded the departure of French troops. Some waved Russian flags, calling for them to intervene. Since 2019, a belt of six countries stretching from the Atlantic to the Red Sea have suffered coups, and now Niger is the latest, a vast and fragile country suffering from rising Islamist insecurity and now further instability. This was the video the State Department released in March after Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited the country. Niger is a key Western ally in West Africa's Sahel, a region where Western ties are under strain. Niger is really an extraordinary model at a time of great challenge, a model of resilience, a model of democracy. Two years ago, Niger had its first democratic transfer of power held by the US Western and regional allies. Yet four months later, President Mohamed Bazoum is being held by soldiers from his own presidential guard. France and the United States and others overlook some serious governance problems, very strong presidency with with sometimes shaky legitimacy. Alex Thurston is an assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati and studies Islam and African politics. He said the importance of Niger to counterterrorism led to diplomats heavily backing the country with funds and overlooking major concerns of malpractice during recent elections. These were kind of warning signs that were there to French and American policymakers had they chosen to look at them. Warning signs that that the country was brittle in some key ways. More than a thousand US troops are stationed in Niger and a larger French force also operates there, conducting counter-terrorism operations alongside the Nigerian army. But Islamist insurgencies are getting worse across the Sahel. Regional and Western allies face a predicament in their response to the new military leaders because a lack of consequences risks destabilizing neighboring countries with histories of coup attempts. But any isolation from the international community could be exploited by Russia. Your Excellency, Mr. Asumani. Your Excellencies, heads of state, government. This was Russian President Vladimir Putin welcoming African leaders to St. Petersburg today for a Russia-African summit, where Russia seeks to improve its ties on the continent. Today, supporters of the coup were jubilant, celebrating on the streets of Niamey. But it's not clear what direction the military leadership will pursue. And after yesterday, Niger's future is even more uncertain. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. There is a legal battle brewing in a small town in Alabama. And the question at the center, who is the mayor of New Bern? 
In a federal lawsuit filed last year, Patrick Braxton alleges he was the only candidate to file for mayor in 2020. Braxton, who is Black, says he has been obstructed from assuming office by the previous mayor, who's white this whole time. And there's another thing to note. Newburn hasn't had a local election in years. Kyle Whitmire is a columnist at AL.com and has been following this, and he joins us now. Hi, Kyle. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Kyle, Newburn is a town of fewer than 200 people, and as I was just pointing out, it hasn't had an election in years, which seems a little strange to me, but why is that? Well, no one there can remember there ever having been an election. I mean, it is a small town. Uh, The town is about 80% black, about 20% white. Uh, just slightly fewer than 200 people. And for as long as anybody can remember, control of this town has sort of been handed down like a, like a family heirloom. And, you know, because of the history of this place, that's been mostly white people handing control to white people. Uh, the previous mayor, who's still claiming to be mayor, Woody Stokes, uh, he's actually Woody Stokes III. Uh, the previous mayor before him was Woody Stokes Jr., and that was never really disrupted uh, until Patrick Braxton decided he wanted to run for mayor. Okay, let's dig into this conflict a bit. Patrick Braxton, who filed the lawsuit, alleges that he is the mayor of New Bern. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? He is a uh, he's a contractor and a volunteer uh, fire fireman. And decided, well, maybe he could run this town better than the people who were in charge. So what happened is initially uh, Patrick Braxton is the only candidate to qualify in any of the elections for town council or for mayor. And he is recognized as the mayor. Well, typically when there is a vacancy on a town council, the mayor gets to appoint someone to fill that vacancy. Well, this lame duck council they call a special election in which they all qualify this time. But curiously, neither Patrick Braxton nor anybody else heard of this election, knew there was going to be an election, and all of those four candidates claim to have won by default. Now, understand that this is a town that is 1.5 square miles in size. This is not a town where it's easy to keep a secret, but somehow the first election that anyone has ever had in this place just sort of slid by without anybody noticing. It it stretches uh, credulity to believe it. So you've mentioned what you've heard from Patrick Braxton, who filed this lawsuit and alleging that he's the mayor. But what about Stokes or the previous administration? What have you heard from them? Uh, they are radio silent, except for what they are, you know, are filing in court. There's not a lot of dispute over the facts. There's some dispute over the law and whether their special called election was legal or not. You know, the, the hardest thing outside of this town is why does, why does something like this matter, right? And, you know, we understand voting rights as something that affects presidential races, but it also affects whose streets get cleaned up first after a storm, whether your trash pickup is working appropriately. Uh, those are concerns, frankly, that affect people more directly sometimes than who the president of the United States is. And, you know, voting rights matter. 
your ability to go into a voting booth and choose who represents you matters as much for your town council in a town of, of fewer than 200 people as it does for President of the United States. Kyle Whitmire of AL.com, thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This summer has been one of the driest on record for much of the Midwest, deepening a years-long drought in Kansas and Nebraska and spreading east. And while July brought some much-needed rain, Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rembert wondered, will it be enough for thirsty crops? Ryan Crank is walking into one of his cornfields in southeast Nebraska. He's out in the fields today, but a few weeks ago, he didn't want to even look at the crop. All I really want to do is just, like, go home and, you know, don't look at it. Because it was sickening. It was just absolutely sickening. Deep dryness had scorched his corn. The plants had a grayish hue instead of the usual vibrant green and were just calf or even ankle high when they should have been above his head. It looked like death. And I said, you know, I don't think it's going to see tomorrow. And it's still somehow here, several tomorrows later. July rains provided a lifeline to crops in the Midwest and Great Plains. Now, Crank's corn is taller and greener. I mean, the, the, the turnaround was magical, it is magical, but we need more rain, that's for sure. It'll take consistent precipitation to nourish crops and improve the drought, which has been baking soil and plants for years in portions of the Midwest and Great Plains. The region went into the summer with a lack of soil moisture that many have said is the worst they'd ever seen. Then Mother Nature dealt an incredibly dry May and June, which is when many states can get up to 60% of their annual precipitation. When you miss precipitation during those two months, you know there's going to be trouble. That's Doug Cluck. He's a climatologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. At this point, parts of the Midwest and Great Plains are dealing with drought that's similar to a chronic cold. Dryness has been lurking for years and nagging at farmers as they've raised their crops and livestock. Now it'll take a lot of rain to restore moisture. Yes, we're having some rains, but gosh, give it a week. And what we see today is pretty much going to be gone, but a lot of it's going to get used up by the plants and everything growing right now. As the drought spread east from Kansas and Nebraska, it got so dry in central Illinois that John Ackerman was worried about being able to plant his pumpkins. We went 50 days without uh, virtually a measurable rain. We looked at the forecast every single day. (laughs) Ackerman ended up planting the seeds much deeper in the soil to help them find moisture. That makes it harder for the plant to grow up through the dirt, but the July rains helped the pumpkin sprouts poke through the ground and helped Ackerman's stress levels. My wife says I'm slightly less grumpy than I've been over the last month, so that's a win. It's a win for the crops, too, but Ackerman, who also grows corn and soybeans, says he's still guessing his corn harvest could be up to 20% lower than what he'd like. Lasting heat and dryness may threaten harvests across much of the Corn Belt, says Krista Swanson, an ag economist with the National Corn Growers Association. Our top four corn producing states are Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, and Minnesota, and virtually all are in drought conditions at some rating. 
Luckily, there's good reason to be optimistic for the long term. Meteorologists are predicting a climate pattern called El Nino, which raises the likelihood of cooler, wetter weather occurring in the middle of the country during late summer to early fall. So in parts of the Midwest and Great Plains, at least, an easing of the years-long drought could be in sight. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Rembert. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. New research investigates the relationship between Facebook and Instagram algorithms and the level of political polarization in the United States. Details coming up in about 15 minutes right here at 90.9 WBUR. Most of Massachusetts is under a severe thunderstorm watch until about 8 o'clock tonight. As of this hour, storms are pelting western parts of the state, including Holyoke, Springfield, and Westfield. We in the Boston area could get hit hardest between 6 and 8 tonight. Look out for strong winds and flooding on the roads. Tonight, more rain, strong winds, about 74 for a low. And then for tomorrow, sunshine for the most part, dry but still ugly heat once again, topping out at 92 but feeling closer to 100. This is WBUR, 88 degrees now at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Israel's prime minister has more power after removing a check by the courts on his coalition. What will he do with that power, and how does he defend the change? My concern on the Supreme Court is that it is nullified often the will of the majority on many things. Benjamin Netanyahu, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton, now enrolling for the upcoming year. A nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com. And Innuendo, the Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 12th. Shades, blinds, shutters, and drapery at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Seventy years ago this week, the Korean War ended with an armistice, not a peace deal. North Koreans have marked the anniversary with huge military parades attended by Russian and Chinese delegations. In South Korea, veterans of the war honored the fallen. NPR's Quo Lawrence spoke with some Korean veterans here in the U.S. about what this moment means to them. Even if they lied about their age to enlist, the youngest Korean war vets are now pushing 90. My name is Robert W. Greer Sr. Robert Greer served 11 years in the Air Force in Korea and then Japan. But his memories are dimming. His son, Robert, is now his caretaker. Yeah, uh, Dad, you were telling me earlier about the, the black soldiers and they're getting promoted. That memory is still sharp. Greer joined just a couple years after the U.S. military desegregated. Black soldiers didn't get promoted very much back then. It was always in the lower, lower ranks. Greer eventually made captain. He has just one memory of the armistice in 1953. You were, you were happy about it? We were not happy. Oh, you were not happy? No. Didn't make us lose things. We thought we lost that. They felt like they'd lost. Korea didn't end with victory or surrender or anything Americans back home widely understood. It's one reason Korea is called the Forgotten War by some, not by Colonel Warren Wyden. 
We don't call it forgotten war. We call it forgotten victory. We saved South Korea from becoming a communist country. Wyden says it might not have been clear at the time, but it sure is now. South Korea is democratic and among the world's leading economies, while the North is an impoverished, brutal dictatorship. Wyden just wishes they'd held more of the Korean Peninsula. I think General MacArthur was a General Douglas MacArthur won and then spectacularly lost most of northern Korea before the ceasefire line was drawn. Now, don't get me wrong. The peace treaty was welcome because that meant that the Marines and the soldiers were not getting killed anymore. At 94, Wyden is president of the Chosen Few, a group of vets who fought at Chosen Reservoir, a freezing 17-day battle with the Chinese army. Membership is now being gradually passed on to the next generation. But I actually had no idea my dad was involved with the Chosen Reservoir, and they didn't say one word about it. Nancy Weigel's dad, Gerald, was a Navy corpsman, a medic. He died in 2018. Like many Korea vets, he didn't talk about it much for the first few decades. The World War II vets had obviously been celebrated. There was a clear victory. And when these guys came back, nobody even knew what Korea was. That came later, as Korean products and culture spread across the globe. Her dad was one of many Korean War vets who was invited by South Korea to visit Seoul. Nancy is now a legacy member of the Chosen Few, carrying on their stories. And, of course, the U.S. military has another legacy in Korea, the hundreds of thousands who have served there since. Welton Chang did two tours in Iraq, but his first deployment was Korea. I was there when North Korea detonated their first nuclear weapon. In 2006, a good reminder that the countries are not at peace. Chang says he could feel the importance of those who came before him. I think older Koreans were often the ones who would come up to us, you know, on the street or hiking a mountain somewhere and shake our hands and say thank you. Um, You know, it was always super awkward because you kind of have to remind them that, like, I wasn't even born when any of this stuff happened. Seventy years later, U.S. and Korean troops are still looking across that ceasefire line, a physical reminder of the war and those who fought it. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. And now a sad story from Australia, where a pod of nearly 100 pilot whales became stranded on a beach, despite Herculean efforts by wildlife experts and volunteers to push the whales back into the water. Dozens died. And after 24 hours, Western Australia's Parks and Wildlife Service announced the decision to euthanize those that remained to avoid prolonging their suffering. To find out why these whales that generally live in deep waters ended up stranded on a beach, we are joined by Andrew Reed. He's a professor of marine biology at Duke University who studies pilot whales. Dr. Reed, welcome. Nice to be with you. Begin by giving us just the briefest of descriptions of pilot whales, how big they tend to be, and do they tend to stay together in big groups like this, dozens and dozens of them together? They do. They're extraordinarily social animals. They live in societies much like elephant societies that revolve around matriarchs. And family groups can range up to 20 or so, and so often you get multiple family groups together, as seems like was the case in Western Australia. And these are medium-sized whales. They're 15 to 20 feet long. But really, I think the most salient point is they're really strong social bonds. That animals, females especially, that are born into a group will stay in that group for life. So when something happens to one individual, its groupmates will stay with it, even if it puts them at risk. 
in cases like the one we saw here in Western Australia. Well, and there is video, this is drone video, of this particular pod shot right before they beached themselves doing something strange and quite beautiful. Would you describe it? Yes. Uh, in almost 20 years of studying pilot whales, I've never seen anything like it. The animals are, for want of a better word, kind of huddled together, a hundred whales in a very, very small, compact space, all touching, changing the orientation of the group. It's quite extraordinary video. And to be honest, we really don't understand what caused that behavior. Well, at one point, volunteers and Parks and Wildlife Service staff were able to move some of the whales from the beach back into deeper waters, and they came right back, beached themselves again hours later. Do we know why that behavior? No, but it's not uncommon. And again, because of these really tight social bonds, if some of the relatives of the whales that were pushed off were still back on the beach and calling, it's not surprising that they came back to the beach. Remember, these animals spent their entire life at sea. They've never supported their weight on land before. And so as soon as the animals come to the beach, they start to undergo really incredible levels of physiological stress. I hear you saying we don't have a definitive answer as as to why this particular pod behaved in the way it did. But what's your best guess, having studied them all these years? We've been talking about this in my lab for the last couple of days, and none of us has a definitive idea. It could be that there was some kind of external stimulus, a sound that the animals heard that terrified them, essentially. It could be that there was a sick individual in the middle of that group and the animals were concerned about its welfare. The scientists in Western Australia are conducting postmortems on the animals now, and so we'll know whether any of the animals were sick, but we really are puzzled. I know on one level you approach this as scientists um, trying to gain information about a creature that you've spent your career studying. Is Is there a part of you as a human whose heart just breaks when you watch this? Absolutely. And I think anybody who's ever been on a beach in a mass stranding knows how heartbreaking it is. And you're holding animals up and trying to make sure that they know that somebody is there trying to look after them. You just get a sense for the strong emotional attachment that animals have with each other. And seeing these animals with really high cognitive function in such a terrible state on the beach is a really distressing thing to see. Uh, is Andrew Reed, director of the Duke University Marine Lab. Professor Reed, thanks for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Mary Louise. It's NPR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm. Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. The high heat is bringing lots of cautionary notes from the National Weather Service. There is now a severe thunderstorm watch in effect until 8 tonight, a flood watch until midnight tonight. Already there are storms out in the western part of the state, and a heat advisory continuing until 8 o'clock Saturday night. 
Red Sox rest up today to prepare for a West Coast road swing tomorrow. It starts in San Francisco against the Giants. As of today, the Sox are one and a half games behind Toronto in the race for the final wild card spot in the American League. This is 90.9 WBUR, 89 degrees now in Boston at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Hang on to your hat. We've got some raucous weather moving into the region over the next few hours. There's a severe thunderstorm watch in effect for nearly all of Massachusetts. Storms could come with gusty winds and a lot of lightning. Today is Thursday, July 27th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The latest in the forecast coming up. A temporary boost in pay for wildland firefighters is set to expire in October, and some say they will quit the job if Congress doesn't act to make it permanent. What scientists are learning about tick bites, they can bring on a sudden allergy to red meat, and the symptoms may not seem like an allergy. I woke up in the middle of the night with a severe pain and severe nausea. These stories and much more are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. Supreme Court has sided with developers of a natural gas pipeline set to run through West Virginia and into Virginia. As NPR's Dave Mistrich explains, the Mountain Valley Pipeline has long been plagued by court challenges related to environmental concerns. Approval of the Mountain Valley Pipeline was expedited in a bill intended to lift the nation's debt ceiling. That section of the bill redirected all challenges against the project to the D.C.-based Circuit Court of Appeals. But earlier this month, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Virginia blocked construction of the MVP. Environmentalists argued the project would violate the Endangered Species Act. Developers Equitrans Midstream called on the Supreme Court in an emergency appeal, with the company arguing the Fourth Circuit lacked jurisdiction in this case. The $6 billion pipeline was initially projected to be finished in 2018 when it was first approved. But Equitrans now says they're targeting the end of this year. Dave Mistich, NPR News, Morgantown, West Virginia. A West African regional organization is calling for a return to constitutional order in Niger and says the president should be released from custody. The U.S. is also condemning the military takeover in the country that is key to U.S. counterterrorism efforts in the region. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The Biden administration is backing Niger's president, Mohamed Bazoum, who's believed to be detained at his residence. State Department spokesman Vedant Patel says the U.S. is watching all this closely. The strong U.S. economic and security partnership with Niger depends on the continuation of democratic governance and the respect of the rule of law and human rights. 
So far, he says, there are no signs that the Russian mercenary group Wagner is involved, though the U.S. is worried about that potential. Niger is a key partner in the fight against Boko Haram and ISIS, and hundreds of U.S. special forces and logistics experts are based there. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. The U.S. economy grew at an annual pace of 2.4 percent in the second quarter of this year. NPR's David Gurr reports. This is a faster pace of growth than Wall Street economists expected. And while this is a first estimate and subject to revision, it looks like a positive trend. GDP in the first quarter was 2 percent. The second quarter numbers were driven by consumer demand. People were still spending money in April, May and June, and not just on services. They bought vehicles and gas. A day ahead of the report, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates again by another quarter point. It held rates steady at the previous meeting. And Fed Chair Jerome Powell sounded an optimistic note. He told reporters the Fed is no longer forecasting a recession in the United States. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The stronger-than-expected numbers in terms of economic growth today were not enough to propel stocks higher. The Dow fell 237 points today. The Nasdaq was down 77 points. The Standard & Poor's 500 closed down 29 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Thunderstorms with high winds and heavy rain are expected in the Boston area this evening. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyes says the storms could produce intense and potentially dangerous wind. Not everyone will see damage, but the risk is there. Gust to 60 miles per hour, hail, localized flooding, lightning into the stronger cells. Monitor for warnings in your city or town. There's even a very low risk of an isolated tornado. Noise says tomorrow should be dry and still hot. Today, temperatures in Boston area broke 90 degrees for the first time this week. Temperatures are expected to hit at least 90 degrees tomorrow and Saturday, too, and that could constitute the summer's first heat wave. With humidity, the heat index could feel closer to 100. There's a high surf advisory in effect. Waves in Massachusetts and Rhode Island could break between 4 and 6 feet. The advisory lasts until 8 o'clock tonight. A study released today finds about 800 great white sharks visited the waters off Cape Cod between 2015 and 2018. This is the first comprehensive study of the great white shark population off the Cape. Greg Skomel, shark biologist with the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries. He says the numbers don't mean Cape waters are always crowded with sharks. Over the course of any given month, specifically the peak month of August, September and October, there could be, over the course of that month, you know, well over 100 animals that move through the area. Skomel says that sharks are attracted by seals and that the seal population has grown in the region since they became a protected species. In an effort to lift the spirits of Blue Line riders, some commuters inside Wonderland Station got a little treat this morning. They were greeted with live music from the Liz Sin Trio from the Berkeley College of Music. Berkeley students will be performing at the Wonderland Station every Thursday morning through the end of August. More people are riding the Blue Line during the shutdown of the Sumner Tunnel in Boston. In the forecast, severe thunderstorm watch is in effect until 8 o'clock tonight. There are storms right now moving through the western part of the state. Could hit the Boston area between 6 and 8 o'clock tonight. Overnight tonight, some more storms likely about 74 for low. Tomorrow, sunny but still hot. Highs about 92 but feeling even hotter. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Facebook's role in American politics has been under scrutiny for years. In particular, critics worry that the social giant's powerful algorithms, which recommend content to keep you engaged, that they are exacerbating polarization and partisanship. A new set of studies focusing on Facebook during the 2020 election, it's out today, and takes on some of those questions, what they found is complicated. And Pierre Shannon Bond is here to tell us more. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Mary Louise. There is a whole lot of research about social media and politics already out there. What sets these studies apart? This is a rare collaboration between Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, and 17 outside researchers who worked really closely with Meta to access Facebook and Instagram user data for months before and after the 2020 election. You know, this data is typically pretty closely guarded by the company. And Meta did not have control over what they published. It's been a long road for these studies to see the light of day. But, you know, the authors say this kind of research is really necessary if we're going to more fully understand these impacts of social media. Okay, And so what are we understanding? What did we learn that's new about Facebook and politics? Well, as you said, there's been a lot of focus on algorithms, right, as as the cause of polarization and other social problems. Um, But the researchers conducted experiments altering algorithms on Facebook for thousands of users. And they found those alterations did not affect their political beliefs. It didn't reduce polarization. Now, Meta says this supports what it's been saying for a long time, that social media is not to blame for our our polarized culture. And to be sure, there are a lot of factors behind growing political divides. But the authors of this research say, you know, these were changes. They were made for three months during a very contentious election. It could just be you can't change people's beliefs that quickly, especially when we've all been using social media for so long. And they did also find in these studies that Facebook algorithms have a lot of influence over what people see and how they behave on Facebook. How so? What kind of influence? Well, the researchers tested some ideas that critics and policymakers have proposed to mitigate some of the risks they see from social from social media, including getting rid of the algorithm altogether, right, and showing people a chronological feed of posts. When they did that, they found that users saw more ideologically mixed posts, but they also saw more untrustworthy content. They saw more politics and they posted less about politics and they used Facebook less. And I think that gives a sense of just how influential these recommendations from the algorithms can be. The researchers also found the algorithm helps funnel conservatives and liberals into largely separate ideological bubbles on the platform. So they looked at data from 208 million Facebook users in the U.S., and they found very little overlap between the political news conservatives see and interact with and that which liberals see and interact with, a gap even bigger than we see in other media. They also found there's just a lot more news on Facebook that appeals to conservatives, and most of the news rated false by outside fact checkers is seen by conservatives. Take a step back with me. Social media has gotten so much blame for the political divisions in society today. These new studies, how might they inform the debate about that? Right. I mean, there is this focus, especially recently, on regulating algorithms. But what these studies suggest is there just isn't a silver bullet to unwinding whatever role social media does play in driving polarization. Mm -hmm. What these studies do show is the algorithm has lots of power to influence what we see and how we post. And we need to understand that to have a more informed debate about the role of social media. There is a lot more research to come from this project. So I'd say this is really just a starting point. Thank you, Shannon. 
Thank you. And Pierre Shannon Bond. Victims of the opioid crisis may lose a billion dollars in settlement money. The big Irish drug maker Mallinckrodt is in negotiations to slash the amount paid to communities as part of an opioid deal reached last year. The money may go instead to hedge funds and other investors. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann has been following this story and joins us now. And Brian, I mean, there is a billion dollars on the line here. What was this money supposed to be used for? Yeah, Mallinckrodt's one of the companies accused of flooding communities with generic opioid pain medications. And like a lot of corporations involved in the opioid trade, they were swamped with lawsuits. So last year, as part of a bankruptcy proceeding, they promised to pay communities a total of $1.7 billion to settle all those cases. They have paid some of that money, but now the rest uh, is in question. I mean, that's a pretty big shift. What's changed with the situation that could let Mallinckrodt off the hook? Well, Mallinckrodt's still struggling financially, and the company's executives have acknowledged they may be forced to file for bankruptcy again. So when investors and the company's debtors caught wind of that possible second bankruptcy, they began clamoring to have Mallinckrodt put them at the front of the line so they would be paid out before all these opioid victims. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that a group of hedge funds wants a new bankruptcy plan that would effectively leave them in control of the firm while cutting the company's total opioid payout by roughly a billion dollars. If approved by the court, it would apparently still block all those opioid lawsuits faced by Mallinckrodt. Wow. Okay. And what is the company saying about this possibility? You know, they sent a, a statement to NPR this afternoon saying they're still negotiating with everyone involved, with debtors and stakeholders and opioid victims. And they say they're trying to find, and I'm quoting here, the best path forward in light of our debt and opioid settlement obligations. You mentioned they're the victims, and I have to imagine this is unwelcome news for people whose families were impacted by the opioid crisis. What have you heard? Yeah, there's a lot of anger. Communities all over the U.S. say they desperately need this money. You know, it's a time when record numbers of Americans are still dying from opioid overdoses, roughly 110,000 deaths last year alone. The hope is that corporate payouts will fund programs that just keep people alive. And there is also the question of corporate accountability. You know, these companies agreed, all these companies involved in the opioid trade agreed to pay more than $50 billion in compensation. Joseph Steinfeld, one of the attorneys representing opioid victims, told me that if Mallinckrodt withholds a billion dollars of that money, it would be devastating. Before I let you go, I do want to ask you about new developments in a different opioid case. That's a case involving Purdue Pharma, which is the maker of OxyContin. What's going on there? Yeah, so a bit of history. Purdue Pharma went bankrupt, and in 2021, a federal court did something controversial. They allowed the uh, members of the Sackler family who owned the firm to effectively piggyback on the bankruptcy process. Uh, it was really controversial at the time. Members of the Sackler family aren't bankrupt. They're quite wealthy. But they agreed to pay a lot of money in exchange for sweeping immunity from opioid lawsuits. What's happened now is a division of the Justice Department is appealing that bankruptcy deal again, and this time all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. We don't know whether the high court will take up the, that case. What is clear is that billions of dollars of this opioid money hangs in the balances as these big cases involving Purdue Pharma and Mallinckrodt play out. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Brian, thank you. Thanks so much. Federal wildland firefighters could soon see a big cut in their pay. A bipartisan group of lawmakers is racing to pass a fix, but some advocates say it is not enough. Nate Hedgie from the public radio podcast Outside In reports. The smoke jumper base in Missoula, Montana is humming with activity. There's a plane gearing up for a practice parachute drop. 
and exhausted firefighters returning home after weeks on assignment at blazes in Idaho and Michigan. Isaac Cruises is back for a few days before rolling out to New Mexico for another fire. Business as usual, he says. You could be on the road two to three weeks uh, away from your family working 16-hour days. So there's a lot of time out there in the dirt and away from your family. Cruises, who's 47, has been a firefighter for more than two decades. He's also an officer in the union that represents U.S. Forest Service employees. He says the job has been good for the past couple of years. Ever since Congress passed a temporary pay bump for firefighters back in 2021 as part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, it raised their base pay by 50% or $20,000, whichever came first. Cruises says the boost made his job a lot more palatable because it meant he didn't have to chase overtime as much during the off-season to make ends meet. It allowed me not to leave the family in, in January and February. It allowed me to be home and take care of the kids a little more. But that boost expires on September 30th. Without it, the base pay for a new recruit would return to around $14 an hour. In a town like Missoula, you can make more money working in a restaurant. Cruises' union estimates that the Forest Service could lose more than a third of its firefighters to higher-paying jobs if the pay boost expires. You need somebody to help fight those fires, and if we don't retain those people, you're going to have nobody to do it. Earlier this month, a bipartisan group of senators from western states introduced a bill to permanently raise the pay for firefighters. Even Montana Republican Steve Daines, a strong critic of the Biden administration and government spending, is a co-sponsor as is his Democratic counterpart, John Tester. This is about recruitment. It's about retention. It's about paying folks for a very dangerous job so that they can have a fair salary. The firefighters union is supporting the bill. Members like Cruz's say it would still result in a pay cut for many firefighters compared to what they've been getting for the past two years, but it's more than what they were paid before then. This bill is going to give you less than we're getting right now, but it's a start. While the bill would increase how much money they get working overtime, it would actually decrease their base pay. Everybody's going to take some kind of a pay cut, and the people at the higher levels are going to take the biggest pay cut. Reva Duncan is with the advocacy group Grassroots Wildland Firefighters. She says the new bill means some experienced fire managers could see their base hourly wages drop by 25 percent compared to what they're currently getting. The U.S. Forest Service estimates that firefighters can make up that gap by working six weeks or more on active fires or prescribed burns. That way, they'd get extra overtime or hazard pay. But Duncan says that isn't a reliable source of income, especially for behind-the-scenes personnel who aren't actively on fires all the time. That said, she thinks the bill is better than nothing and that her group will keep lobbying Congress for more changes. Our hope is that people hang in there. Uh, grassroots is going to continue to fight for other reforms that really didn't get included into this new proposal. So that's our hope. We're going to try and encourage people to hang in there a little longer. Back at the smoke jumper base in Missoula, Isaac Cruzes says he still supports the bill, but he'll also be gearing up to chase more overtime work this coming winter to make up any gaps. I've got six children and uh, I'm going to be away from them for a bit. For NPR News, I'm Nate Hedgie in Missoula, Montana. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, COVID infections, hospitalizations, and emergency room visits appear to have ticked up for the first time this year. The good news, though, is that the U.S. is not seeing a summer surge for the first time since the pandemic began. 
Our story is coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. So much for the historic Dow rally on Wall Street. Today, the index dropped nearly seven-tenths of a percent. Same for the S&P. It lost just about seven-tenths, and the Nasdaq fell a little over a half percent. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, sourced in New England and focused on combining design with handmade craftsmanship. More about their sustainably crafted furniture at circlefurniture.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. In the next hour, we could have severe weather moving into our region. Be prepared for wind gusts possibly as high as 60 miles an hour, some hail, lightning, and localized flooding. Be sure to steer clear of any flooding. Right now, a line of thunderstorms is making its way east through Worcester County from Lemonster to Warren. Strong winds from severe thunderstorms are causing damage in the western part of the state. The National Weather Service reports trees and wires are down in the Springfield area. Flights at Logan are being delayed because of the bad weather in other parts of the country. The FAA says thunderstorms in the New York area have Logan flights to JFK Airport delayed by more than three hours. Thunderstorms in Denver are putting a hold on the Boston flights that are heading out to Colorado. This is WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations, including associations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Let's check in now on what has already been an exciting opening week for the Women's World Cup underway in Australia and New Zealand. Anticipation was already high for last night's match between the United States and the Netherlands. Some of you may recall this is the same pairing that faced off in the finals of the last World Cup in 2019. That one ended up with a U.S. win. Win. This time around, the match ended with a resounding tie. Well, soccer writer Sophie Downey joins us now from Sydney, Australia, where she's tracking all the action. Hey, Sophie. Hello. Great to be on. So for a tie, um, there were some exciting moments, and I want to ask you to briefly recap last night's match for us. I guess I should note it was last night for those of us here watching in the States um, with the massive time difference. It was today for you, right? Uh, yes, it was this morning. But yes, it was quite a good game, wasn't it? Yeah. What stood out to you? Um, I think it was a really good matchup in the way that they came out. I think the Netherlands really took it to the Americans in the first half. That low block and their defensive lineup was sort of stopping um, the USA in, in terms of their attacking ability and limiting what the likes of Sophia Smith and Alex Morgan could do. And so in that first half, they took control and got the lead through Jill Rawd in the 17th minute which was a good finish. And it was the first time, I think, that the U.S. had trailed since 2011 huh. in a World Cup game. But then, as the USA always do, they come back into things, don't they? There was a good substitution at halftime. Rose Lavelle came on, and I think she turned the game, really, and she enabled the USA to get forward. So sounds like, in your view, the, the tie was the correct outcome. These were two well-matched teams. You mentioned Sophia Smith. Um, she is, is it fair to say, the breakout star of the U.S. team so far in this World Cup? 
she is. She's an absolute superstar, even for her, her young age. And it's just what you want to see. And her World Cup debut last game out against Vietnam, where she got two goals and assist. Um, mm. That was a special way to announce yourself on the world stage, isn't it? Yeah. Now, I mean, this is the first World Cup for her, for 14 players in total on the U.S. team. And I know there were questions going in about their relative inexperience. Has it showed? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a transitional time, isn't it? You're starting to see the end of the kind of old guard. The Megan Rapinoe's and Alex Morgan's are probably not going to go on much longer. Well, we we know Rapinoe is, is retiring at the end of the NWSL season. I think it's really exciting for the U.S. to see the, the young players come through and the talent that they have. It might not be the World Cup where they are fully at their best because it's their first tournament, but it's a great, great sign of the future and what they can do. And the fact that they're producing so many youngsters with that kind of talent is superb. Um, before I let you go, Sophie, since we are speaking to you uh, from Sydney, I want to ask about another game you were riveted by today, I guess. This was Australia versus Nigeria. Tell me what happened. Yes, well, the hosts were beaten, which is um, quite a shock to the system, I think, for all of the, the home fans here in, in Australia. But no, Nigeria played really, really well. They came right at them. They they matched them in all areas of the park, in the second half especially. And um, until the... like. I think it was the 100th minute where Australia pulled one goal back. They were 3-1 up, Nigeria. So, yeah, big shot to the system. And it, it leaves one of Australia or Canada looking likely to go out at the group stage. Mm. All right. So a tense day there in Australia. Better luck to the home team next time. And thanks for catching us up on everything underway in this Women's World Cup. No problem at all. That's soccer writer Sophie Downey speaking with us from Sydney. And now to China for a story about a mysterious blogger and a woman left to discover who her husband really was after the police hauled him away. NPR's John Ruich has more from Shanghai. Police came to arrest Ran Xiaohuan on a hot day in May 2021. His wife, Bei Jianying, was in the kitchen. That day at midday, he was in his study. He was always in his study. I was preparing lunch. The police separated them and confiscated their phones and computers. They told Bei her husband had an overseas blog and was suspected of subverting state power. I was really scared. I couldn't imagine my husband could write such things if he'd done what they said. Bay was incredulous at first. Her husband was a nerd, a computer programmer who had worked on internet security during the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. He was an independent thinker, but he wasn't openly political and generally minded his own business. He would hole up in his study for hours, doing what he said was work. I talked with his parents. We thought my husband wouldn't have been scared to write a few sensitive things, but it was impossible given his character that it could have been very extreme. Bay didn't know it at the time, but her husband had apparently been keeping a blog called Program Think. It taught people how to scale China's so-called Great Firewall to access blocked overseas websites. It mapped out the connections and wealth of senior Communist Party members, and it pushed back hard against Beijing's propaganda. Xiao Chang with the University of California Berkeley's School of Information says the blog was eloquent, logical, and important. His blog become a magnet, attract actually hundreds of thousands of people who read this person who just like them. They they live inside of China within the Great Firewall, but are capable of thinking independently to see through the propaganda. And program think pulled off something extraordinary, he says. 
The blogger used his cybersecurity expertise to stay anonymous and keep active for 12 years. It was a period of ever-tightening restrictions on speech in China. So all of this element adds together made him a sort of mystical status. Bei Jianying didn't know any of it. Months went by after Ran's arrest. His lawyers refused to divulge details about the case, saying it involved state secrets. Um, after I learned how to get over the Great Firewall, I went to an internet cafe to get online. She went to a foreign search engine, blocked in China, and typed in the words, missing blogger. An article popped up about Program Think. My husband is so straight that he wouldn't pick a fun or fancy blog name. It would be something direct, like Program Think. And I thought, huh, it might be him. The writing style was familiar, too. There was a reference to V for Vendetta, which was one of her husband's favorite films. Then she looked at posts around the end of 2017 and early 2018, a time when Ron was sick in bed. I checked, and in the posts around that time, each one said, Sorry, I've been really busy these days, so I'm late in posting this. And then I knew for sure it was him. It was too big a coincidence. And so is this. Program Think's last post was on May 9th, 2021. Police took Ran Xiaohuan away the next day. This February, he was sentenced to seven years in prison. Bei is working on his appeal and trying to support him in every way she can. So this past spring, on weekends, Bei would drive her scooter up to a towering wall in an apartment complex in Shanghai. On the other side is the detention center where her husband is locked up. She turned on a loudspeaker with a pre-recorded message. I am telling him we know he's programmed Think. The message says his friends and the international community are now following his case. And it says we hope he won't be down, and that he can relax because his family is still safe. Bei is determined to fight for her husband's freedom. But if, indeed, Ran Xiaohuan is program think, as is widely suspected now, the chances seem slim that a legal appeal will lead to him being released. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, the Veterans of Foreign Wars organization has long helped vets navigate federal bureaucracy to get the benefits they've earned. It is worried that too few women are joining and missing out, so it's getting out the word. Some heavy rain on the way should arrive sometime between 6 and 8 overnight tonight. Look for storms, lots of lightning, possible flooding in some areas as well. Overnight tonight could have a few more storms, about 74 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, should be dry with an ugly heat once again, though. Sunshine topping out at 92 degrees, feeling closer to 100. For Saturday, wet again. Showers and thunderstorms, also some sunshine. Highs about 90. And then finally, relief on Sunday, mostly sunny, pulling back to a comfortable 80 degrees. It is 85 degrees now in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton now enrolling for the upcoming year, a nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com Israel's prime minister has more power after removing a check by the courts on his coalition. What will he do with that power, and how does he defend the change? My concern in the Supreme Court is that it is nullified often the will of the majority on many things. Benjamin Netanyahu. 
tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is looking to provide some relief from extreme heat as record high temperatures persist across the country. Biden was joined at the White House today by mayors of several major cities that have faced scorching temperatures this summer. Biden announced new steps to protect workers, including a hazard alert, notifying companies about ways to stay safe from extreme heat, as well as measures to improve weather forecasts and make drinking water more accessible. Part of the reason we're here today is to get word out so state and local governments know these resources are available and uses them. We want the American people to know help is here and we're going to make it available to anyone who needs it. The National Weather Service says nearly 40 percent of the country is facing heat advisories as temperatures soar in the southwest, with more heat expected in the Midwest and Northeast in coming days. It's been a year since a historic and deadly flood destroyed thousands of homes in eastern Kentucky. Some folks there have moved on to higher ground, while others have chosen to stay. From member station WEKU, Stan Ingold reports. Governor Andy Bashir started his day visiting locations that will house survivors of the 2022 floods and floods from the previous year. And he says that he'll be going to even more property sites in eastern Kentucky that will be used to build homes for those affected by the floods. Governor Bashir said that they have an opportunity not only to provide more homes, but to improve lives. We made a promise that we would be there every day to restore every building and repair every life. But our commitment shouldn't be rebuilding, it should be revitalization. The July 2022 floods in eastern Kentucky killed 45 people. One of the victims has yet to be found. For NPR News, I'm Stan Ingold in Richmond, Kentucky. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow down six-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Radar is showing a strong thunderstorm over Hopkinton near Milford right now with wind gusts of up to 50 miles an hour and even some hail. The National Weather Service is warning of severe weather in the region. The Boston area is expected to be hit with storms and high winds sometime between 6 o'clock and 8 o'clock tonight. The MBTA named a new general or new manager to improve safety at subway stations. The T's general manager created the position after a ceiling tile at a red line station fell, just missing a rider. Dennis Varley says as the MBTA's first chief of stations, he wants to know what specific improvements are needed. So I want to go out and see the stations, you know, get a, apprise myself of what's out there, get familiar with the infrastructure, meet the employees and the passengers if I can and see what their issues are. Barley will oversee safety and maintenance at stations for the agency. Also today, the MBTA announced three other leadership positions for customer service, finance, and infrastructure. The T will spend nearly $120 million on a new fleet of electric buses. State transit officials said today they awarded the contract to a Canadian company, New Flyer of America. It calls for 80 electric buses to be delivered to the state between 2025 and 2026. A new poll of Massachusetts voters finds strong support for a statewide rent control policy, but that enthusiasm changes depending on certain factors. Here's WBR's Walter Wuthman. The poll from the Conservative Fiscal Alliance Foundation finds nearly 60 percent of voters would support a policy that stops landlords from raising rents too high. The numbers track with an earlier survey by a more liberal group. But pollster Jim Eltringham says support erodes if rent control is framed as government control or has a negative impact on building upkeep. And that's where we started to see a flip. We see, 
you know, 47% oppose rent control, and we start to see dips across party lines. The survey of 750 likely voters was conducted last week. It has a margin of error of 3.6%. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Most of Massachusetts is under a severe thunderstorm watch until 8 o'clock tonight. Heavy rain is moving through parts of western and central Mass. Could reach the Boston area in about a half hour between 6 o'clock and 8 o'clock tonight. Look out for strong winds, possible flooding on the roads. Tonight, more rain and strong winds, about 74 for low. Tomorrow should be dry, but sunny and still hot. Temperatures in the low 90s. 85 degrees in Boston now at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Yet another summer wave of COVID infections may have started. That is according to the latest data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But so far, COVID's toll looks nothing like the last three summers. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now to explain. Hi, Rob. Hey, Juana. So, Rob, I just have to be honest with you. This is not the kind of update many people want to hear. Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, you know, the CDC says all the metrics suggest that the virus is still out there and just hasn't given up the fight. The amount of virus being detected in wastewater, the percentage of people testing positive, and the number of people going to emergency rooms because of COVID all started creeping back up at the beginning of July. And in the past week, Dr. Brendan Jackson, the CDC's COVID-19 incident manager, says officials spotted a key bellwether. After roughly six, seven months of steady declines, things are starting to tick back up again. We've we've seen the early indicators go up for the past several weeks, and just this week for the first time in a long time, we've seen hospitalizations tick up as well. This could be the start of a late summer wave. Hospitalizations jumped 10%. Now, most of those ending up in a hospital are older, like in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and deaths from COVID are still falling. In fact, they're at the lowest they've been since the CDC started tracking them. But that could change in the coming weeks if hospitalizations keep increasing. Okay, so Rob, how worried should we be about this? You know, for now, it's very much a kind of wait-and-see situation. Jackson stresses the numbers are still very, very low, far lower than they were the last three summers. If you sort of imagine the decline in cases looking like a ski slope going down and down and down for the last six months, we're just starting to see a little bit of a, almost like a little ski jump at the bottom. A jump that could keep shooting up, but not necessarily. So the CDC is nowhere near ratcheting up recommendations for what people should do, like, you know, urging routine masking again. Here's how Caitlin Rivers from Johns Hopkins put it. It's like when meteorologists are like watching a storm forming offshore and they're not sure if it'll pick up steam yet or if it'll even turn towards the mainland, but they see that the conditions are there and are watching closely. 
But, you know, people are probably hearing more about friends and family catching COVID again. In fact, I caught it for the first time about six weeks ago. It was pretty mild, but it still wasn't fun. And my wife caught it for me, got pretty sick, and is still recovering. Oh, I hope she's feeling better soon, Rob. Thanks. What is the cause and the uptick in cases? You know, no one thinks it's some kind of new variant or anything like that. It's, it's There's just what people are calling a soup of Omicron subvariants spreading around that don't look much different than the others that came before it. So, you know, it's probably just a repeat of the last three years. The virus has surged in the U.S. every summer and, and every winter since the pandemic started. So maybe that's just how it's going to be from now on. Uh, last thing, what's the outlook looking forward for the rest of the summer and the rest of the year? You know, it wouldn't be surprising if the numbers keep going up for a bit and cause a true summer wave, but it's pretty unlikely to get anywhere close to being as bad as the last three summers because we have so much immunity from all the infections and vaccinations we've gotten. And many experts do think there'll be another wave this fall and winter and maybe a pretty big one. So the Food and Drug Administration is expected to approve a new vaccine in September to try to blunt whatever happens during the winter. NPR Health correspondent Rob Stein, thank you. Sure thing, Juana. Okay, another headline from the CDC. The CDC says a tick-borne illness that causes a red meat allergy is an emerging public health concern. There have been more than 90,000 suspected cases between 2017 and 2022, but nearly half of clinicians have never heard of the condition. That's according to a pair of CDC reports released today. NPR's Allison Aubrey explains the allergy and how to treat it. It's been several years since scientists first connected the dots between tick bites and red meat allergies. Doctors had documented instances of anaphylaxis, itching, and hives. What's new is that doctors now know that tick bite meat allergy doesn't always come on like an allergy. For 72-year-old Randy Rayborn, it came on with what felt like food poisoning. There was no warning sign. I woke up in the middle of the night with a severe pain and severe nausea, and I had to rush to the restroom, and I'm just going to call it a violent upheaval, the most violent upheaval I've ever had in my life. Rayborn lives in Caswell County, North Carolina, in a rural community with lots of deer and lots of Lone Star ticks. He recalls pulling several ticks off his body in the summer leading up to this episode, though he never imagined the ticks caused it, nor did he think hamburgers or bacon had anything to do with it. Then a few weeks later, the same thing happened again. So I'm thinking I've got pancreatitis or something worse. So after making it through that episode, I went to the doctor. She sent me to the hospital to have a lot of testing done. What a blood test revealed is that he likely had a tick-borne illness that caused him to feel sick after eating red meat. When his doctor called to give him the news, she started with a question. Have you ever heard of alpha-gal syndrome? I'd never heard of that. I was taken back because I had no idea that a tick bite could cause such a severe reaction. Alpha-gal is a sugar molecule found in most mammals, including cows, lambs, and pigs. It can also be found in the saliva of ticks. Humans do not make alpha-gal, so it's foreign to us. Dr. Scott Cummins is an allergist at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. He says when tick saliva goes through a person's skin and transmits alpha-gal, it can trigger a potent immune response. Our immune system can be tricked, if you will, into making an allergic response to that particular sugar. And once that allergic response to the alpha-gal sugar starts, 
Cummins says eating red meat can be a problem. We are now poised to have an allergic reaction because the alpha-gal is in the meats. People with alpha-gal syndrome are advised to eliminate red meat from their diets entirely, and sometimes dairy, too. That's what Randy Rayborn did after his attack several years ago. And he says as long as he stays on the diet, he feels fine. I miss bacon, hamburgers, but after suffering through those two episodes, mm -mm, I don't miss them that much. Early reports of alpha-gal syndrome linked to Lone Star tick bites were concentrated in the southeast, but the range extends from New York and Iowa to Texas and Florida. And perhaps the biggest surprise is how variable alpha-gal syndrome can be from person to person. Dr. Sarah McGill is a gastroenterologist at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. What's new is that we've described patients who really just have GI symptoms, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and they don't get hives. They don't get swelling of their face, problems breathing that would trigger you to think that this is an allergic reaction. McGill has co-authored new guidelines put out by the American Gastroenterological Association, to have GI doctors look for the syndrome when they see unexplained digestive problems and exposure to ticks. Dr. Scott Cummins says the new understanding that some patients don't get allergic symptoms is important. Probably we were missing these patients completely. So getting GI doctors on board, he says, may help expand the detection and diagnosis of alpha-gal syndrome. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The VFW, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, has just under a million members, less than half as many as at its peak. That is partly due to an aging demographic, but the group also has a reputation for being men only. As the VFW wraps up its annual convention in Phoenix this week, Christina Estes with member station KJZZ reports on how the group is trying to attract more women. As a German linguist, Amy McKenzie was stationed in West Berlin during the rise and fall of the wall. At a session called How to Engage Women Veterans, she recalled visiting her local VFW post in Pennsylvania after leaving the Air Force. In the hopes of joining as a regular member and automatically being handed an auxiliary application. She requested a regular application, went through the verification process, and became a member in 2006. The old guard, that's what I call them, called me the blonde girl, for three years. Today, she's called the VFW Department of Pennsylvania Women Veterans Chairperson. Mackenzie oversees an annual conference for and about women veterans. We have a whole series of events that we do covering the VA benefits. The benefits have never been bigger. The VFW pushed for last year's PACT Act, a new law that will spend $700 billion to expand VA health care and benefits. And one of the most important things the VFW does is help its members navigate the federal bureaucracy to get the benefits. We bring in service officers who will process claims right on the spot. But many female veterans never get help from the VFW because it has a reputation as an old boys club. I and mean, then you're dealing with military men, you know, they can be very sexist. In the Army, Denise Perry encountered sexism and racism. Still, she joined her local VFW in Maryland and achieved leadership positions all the way to the national level. Perry credits a local commander for being an early mentor and sees greater diversity at these conventions 
but says more women need to be tapped for leadership positions. A lot of the incoming commanders, they can appoint people. No, everybody's not elected. If you would just give them those appointments at the national level, that would trickle down, I think, to the lower level also. At this year's convention, the VFW elected its first woman as National Junior Vice Commander, Army veteran Carol Whitmore. In 2025, she'll become the group's first female commander-in-chief. That's not why I'm doing this. I'm a veteran first, but I will be a different face than what they're used to seeing, and I think that will encourage other women to want to join and do things. The VFW says most members don't list gender on their applications, but 4% have identified as female. Based on event attendance and veteran and military demographics, the VFW thinks it's more like 8%. Don't assume anything. Back at the session on how to engage women veterans, Barbara Longcar, who served in the Army, says when recruiting in public... Ask the females that are out there as we're coming by, are you a veteran? Marine veteran Debbie McElhannon shared a lesson about promotion after a Louisiana event didn't go over so well because of three letters on a flyer, VFW. We were told by some women veterans who did not come to the event, they automatically thought males that males are going to be over this convention for women because they saw VFW really big. The goal is to flip that reaction, to make those three letters a welcome sign for all. It won't be easy, but as these women said, they're not quitting. They deserve to be VFW members and get the benefits they've earned. For NPR News, I'm Christina Estes in Phoenix. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. The National Weather Service has posted a severe thunderstorm warning for the area until 6.15. The warning includes Boston, Newton, Framingham, Waltham, Natick, Watertown, Franklin, Lexington, Needham, Norwood, Wellesley, Stoughton, Dedham, Belmont, and Walpole. Radar indicates there's a strong cell right now located from Uxbridge to Holliston, also over parts of Acton right now. 60 mile per hour wind gusts have been reported. The Weather Service says the storm is dumping some torrential rainfall over certain areas that could lead to flash flooding. You're reminded not to drive your vehicle through any flooded roadways. It's too dangerous. It's 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, providing an industry-aligned curriculum on campus, online, or hybrid. bc.edu slash msae. Listen to WBUR any place you're headed this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up on all that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. It's time for another Beach Book recommendation from WBUR. Here's Hannah Ali. When We Were Mothers by Massachusetts-based author Nikki Cadillac is a science fiction tale about a dystopian future. Natural birth has been outlawed, and all children must be born in laboratories. Meanwhile, a secret society of women wants to bring the choice to bear children back into the world. But when one member dies during childbirth, the rebel group must find a way to conceal the crime. In When We Were Mothers, Cadillac uses science fiction as a tool to explore real-world dynamics. If you're looking for a tearjerker and a page-turner, When We Were Mothers might be for you. To get weekly book recommendations just like this, send straight to your inbox. Subscribe to our free newsletter at wbur.org slash beachbooks.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It is time now for our Science Roundup with our friends at NPR's shortwave podcast. That would be Regina Barber and Aaron Scott. Hi, you two. Hello. Hey, how's it going? It is going great. Okay, let's get to it. We've got three stories this week. Give me a little tease. Okay, we're going to talk about peanut allergies, pets in the summertime. And poop on the beach. Hey, I think we went downhill in that list. Why don't I circle back before I lose my appetite? (laughs) Regina, kick us off with peanuts, please. Yeah, so for a lot of parents, it can be confusing when it's safe to introduce certain foods to your kids, especially things like peanuts. The current guideline today is, in most cases, that you should feed peanut products to infants early, around four to six months, to help them avoid the development of severe peanut allergies. But a study out this month in the journal Pediatrics surveying 3,000 people who care for infants found that most people are not doing this. Well, because it seems so counterintuitive. I I mean, my personal experience, I have a son with a tree nut allergy, like walnuts, pecans, and so on. And we've spent his whole life avoiding them like the plague. So this guidance is really different from the guidance some of us have been given in the past. Right, exactly. I got the same advice over 10 years ago. The medical advice as currently as a decade ago was to avoid peanuts in infancy. And so now the new guidelines are counterintuitive. And some parents in the study actually said that they were scared to follow the new advice, thinking that early exposure might result in a severe allergic reaction in their kids. That didn't actually happen. Only 1% of babies in the survey had reactions, and they were relatively mild. And research over the years has largely supported this idea that introducing peanuts to babies 4 to 11 months old is a good thing because it sharply reduces peanut allergies among high-risk kids. And that's why the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases released their current recommendations back in 2017 saying earlier introduction is better. But apparently that message is still not getting through to a lot of folks. And do we know why not, why this message is not getting out? Yeah, well, not everyone is hearing it. Um, It turns out that the guidelines are not being communicated to all the caregivers in the same way. For instance, the communities most likely to be aware of this new guideline are white, higher educated, and wealthier, um, which researchers say reflects unequal health care access. Dr. Wahida Samadi, who led the study, says that even though the guidelines are starting to take hold... We still have a ways to go, and we specifically have targeted areas of the population that need this public health message. And just a final caveat here, caregivers should talk to their pediatrician about this if their child has a severe case of eczema or an egg allergy. They may need to be tested by a specialist before trying out peanuts for the first time. Okay. Um, It is safe to say that in my long broadcasting career, I have never before pivoted from peanuts to poop. (laughs) So here we go. Aaron, you have the honors. Lay it on me. I know. Well, I mean, nothing says summer fun like fecal contamination at the beach. Am I right? Uh, (laughs) Yuck. Yeah. Although we do keep seeing these headlines. It seems like every year beach is closing and it's because of dangerous Mm -hmm. water quality. How widespread is this? So possibly more common than you think, earlier this month, an organization called Environment America issued this report that found that more than half of the beaches tested in the United States had potentially unsafe levels of fecal contamination at least one day last year. And then about one in nine of those beaches had unsafe levels at least a quarter of the days they were tested. Do I dare ask where it is coming from? 
a number of places there is pollution from things like failing sewage and stormwater infrastructure. And of course, you know, heavier storms are coming with climate change, so that will likely increase. And then from places like uh, livestock and factory farms. This is not making me excited to go (laughs) swimming, Aaron. I'm sorry to say that it's not just the water. Other research has found that these fecal bacteria also live in beach sand. I spoke with Alexandria Baim. She's a professor of environmental engineering at Stanford, and she studies coastal contamination. And she said that both wet and dry sand are home to all sorts of bacteria, viruses, and other critters. And that's just natural. They are our friends for maintaining a healthy ecosystem at the beach. The problem comes when we have pollution at the beach that contributes microorganisms that may cause a health risk. Okay, so yuck. However, it is hot and I love the beach. So Uh if we're going to swim anyway, how do we do it in a way that's safe? No, I mean, go to the beach. Just kind of monitor your beaches. Like Environment America put all of this data into a dashboard online and you can look up beaches by state and see if they have past contamination. A lot of states themselves post this data, like the Florida Healthy Beaches Program. And then when you're at the beach, you just want to practice good hygiene, like washing your hands before you eat covering up a cut or wound so it doesn't get sand in it, and then probably keeping it out of the water. And, you know, keeping an eye out. If there's been a big rainstorm, you might not want to visit a beach with a history of contamination. Our third and final story. As we Mm -hmm. mentioned, it is hot in a lot of the country right now, really hot. And we've been talking about all kinds of ways to keep people safe. I want to talk about our pets. What's the advice? Yeah, so our NPR colleague, Rachel Treisman, wrote about this recently on NPR.org. And some of the stuff she heard from experts is easy, like don't walk your dog in the middle of the day, look out for hot asphalt, keep an eye out for ticks and fleas, which are more active in the heat. But there's one thing you might not know, and that is that pets can get sunburned just like us. So, you know, this is, of course, a bigger risk for animals that are hairless or that have thin or short coats. But it can be an issue for even the hairier beasts like a husky or a golden retriever if you're grooming them with shorter hair. That can increase their risk of sunburn. I had no idea. I keep our dog's hair cut really short in the summer because I figure it's keeping him cool. Are we supposed to be putting sunscreen on our pets? I mean, you can. Uh, They're actually special sunscreens designed for that. But the easier thing is just not to keep them outside too long. Or if they are outside, make sure they have lots of water and shade But you don't want them in an enclosed place without airflow, like a doghouse. And then just keep an eye on that furry friend. You know, if you notice they're drooling a lot or if their tongue has taken on kind of a deep red or purple color or they seem a bit shaky, those could be signs of heat stroke. In which case, if you've got a pet thermometer, take their temperature, anything above 105, and you're going to want to cool them down. And how are we supposed to cool them down? Like, do we run through the sprinkler, hop in the pool, (laughs) what? I mean, those things work, right? And the key is to cool them slowly. So you could also use towel soaked in cool water, just not an ice bath, because if they get cold too quickly, it can cause their blood vessels to constrict, which will actually make it harder for them to cool off. And like Regina mentioned, the hot asphalt and pavement earlier, one expert did tell NPR that if it is too hot for you to touch with the back of your hand, it could also be too hot for your pet's paws. So in that case, you know, seek out somewhere shady or uh, walk them in the grass instead. Tips for our pets in this heat. That is Aaron Scott and Regina Barber from NPR's science podcast, Shortwave, where you can learn all about new discoveries and everyday mysteries and the science behind the headlines. Aaron and Regina, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. In sports, the Red Sox rest up today. They're preparing for a West Coast road swing that begins tomorrow. It starts in San Francisco against the Giants. As of today, the Sox are one and a half games behind Toronto in the race for the final wild card spot in the American League. This is WBUR. It's 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Coming up, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on how he plans to use a contentious law passed this week that critics fear he'll wield to force out the woman who's overseeing his corruption trial. It's clear that the firing of the Attorney General is on the table. It's clear that it has to do with the trial of Netanyahu. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, first, Russia wiped out the Ukraine Navy. Now Russia is blockading Ukraine's critical grain exports. As Ukraine tries to rebuild its Navy, our reporter boards one of its few boats. Also, the problem of compulsive exercise and eating disorders in young men and boys. And wild summer storms are bearing down on the region, causing delays at Logan Airport, especially for flights outbound heading to New York. Our forecast is coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Former President Donald Trump could soon face a third federal indictment. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the latest criminal charges would stem from a special counsel investigation into Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection. Special counsel Jack Smith and a grand jury have been investigating Trump's attempts to interfere with the transfer of power after the 2020 election. Attorneys for Trump have suggested that a number of charges may be on the table, including conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstruction of Congress on January 6th. In a post on his social media site, Trump said his attorneys had a productive meeting with the Department of Justice, explaining in detail that he did nothing wrong. Trump also said his lawyers advised that an indictment against him would only, quote, further destroy the country. Trump is already facing federal indictments in New York and Florida. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Congress is set to consider a bill that would require protections for laborers during extreme heat. 
Member station CAP Radio in Sacramento, Manola Sakaida has more. The legislation is named after Asuncion Valdivia, a California farm worker who died in 2004 due to heat stroke, brought on by working in over 100 degree temperatures. If adopted, it would require OSHA to establish measures to protect outdoor and indoor laborers during extreme heat. Senator Alex Padilla of California is one of the lawmakers who introduced the bill. The problems of extreme heat are only getting worse as climate change is getting worse. And so the uh, protections that are overdue are uh, urgently needed across the country. Protections described in the legislation include access to water and paid breaks in cool spaces. For NPR News, I'm Manola Sakaida in Sacramento. SpaceX says it has not finished its accident investigation after April's Starship launch. This is according to the Federal Aviation Administration, which is overseeing the probe. Texas Public Radio's Gage The FAA confirmed this week that SpaceX has not yet submitted its accident report after April's Starship launch sent concrete debris into a protected wildlife refuge. Earlier this month, SpaceX CEO Elon Musk said he planned to launch another Starship in August. But SpaceX must complete its report and make corrections to its launches, the agency said. The FAA then must approve both before another Starship can lift off from the company's launch pad in Texas. In a statement, the agency said it would not speculate on when SpaceX would finish its investigation. I'm Gage Davila in McAllen. The U.S. economy grew at a stronger-than-expected pace in the second quarter. The government says the gross domestic product, that's the broadest measure of goods and services produced from the U.S. borders, expanded at a 2.5 percent annual rate for the three months ending in June. Stronger-than-expected numbers in terms of economic growth, not enough to push stocks higher. The Dow closed down 237 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. The National Weather Service has posted a severe thunderstorm warning for the area until 6.15 tonight. That warning includes Boston, Newton, Framingham, Natick, Norwood, Walpole, Denham, and Stoughton. National Weather Service meteorologist Rob Megnia says a cluster of thunderstorms are currently moving through the 495 corridor. We've had uh, multiple reports of trees down, power lines down. Uh, we had a wind gust that uh, that went through uh, Westfield, Mass. earlier that got up to over 60 miles per hour. Um, so that could be um, kind of the high end of wind gusts we could see with some storms uh, for the rest of the evening here. Thunder around the Boston area right now with a light rain heavier in some areas. The thunderstorms are expected to be strong, but are only expected to last through about 8 o'clock tonight. The National Weather Service says a tornado touched down in New Hampshire just south of Keene State College about 3 this afternoon. Meteorologists say it was confirmed by a trained weather spotter reporting a funnel cloud that reached the ground. There have been no reports of injuries. The National Weather Service is expected to survey the area tomorrow. Flights at Logan Airport are being delayed because of bad weather in other parts of the country. The FAA says thunderstorms in the New York area have Logan flights to JFK Airport delayed by more than three hours. Thunderstorms in Denver are putting a hold on the Boston flights. They're heading out to Colorado. And the Massachusetts Senate has unanimously approved a bill that allows people to choose non-binary gender options on birth certificates and driver's licenses without needing a court order or medical documentation. The so-called Gender X legislation also makes it easier for people to change their gender designation on other state documents. The bill will now be considered for passage by the Massachusetts House of Representatives. Again, in the forecast, some of the rain moving into the region now will be heavy with gusty winds. There was hail out in Western Mass earlier today. Could have some more storms overnight tonight, about 74 for a low. Tomorrow, dry but hot again. Sunshine topping out at around 92 but feeling closer to 100. 
84 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. To Israel now, where a new law strips the country's Supreme Court of a key power to override high-level appointments by the prime minister. The measure is contentious. It passed this week despite pleas from President Biden and despite protests in Israeli streets that drew hundreds of thousands of people. Now, for the first time, the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, tells NPR what he expects to do with that law. Let me bring in NPR's Daniel Estrin from Tel Aviv. Hi there, Daniel. Hi, Mary Louise. So Netanyahu spoke to our NPR colleague, Steve Enskeep, and we can hear their full conversation tomorrow on Morning Edition. But since you were listening in, give us the headlines. Sure. He told NPR that with this new law passed, he expects to reappoint his ally, a convicted felon, as a cabinet member or a senior member of his government. So let me explain that. This year, the court said that it was, quote, extremely unreasonable for Arya Derry to serve as a government minister because he was recently convicted on tax offenses. Mm-hmm. But the law that passed this week stripped the Supreme Court from ruling on that basis. And so um, our colleague, Stephen Skeep, asked this of Netanyahu. Will you reappoint him then? Well, do you? It depends what happens, of course, with the legislation. We have to see. But if it stands, you know, I expect it to happen. I don't expect, I don't know if the court will actually strike this down. Now, what Netanyahu is saying there is that if the Supreme Court does not repeal this new law, he expects to reappoint tax felon Arya Derry. This was the speculation, and Netanyahu never said it publicly and clearly until now. One legal expert told me that this kind of statement from Netanyahu could affect whether the Supreme Court does strike down this law. The court has been critical about passing this kind of major law to solve a narrow personal matter. Okay. Um, meanwhile, let me turn you to another personnel matter. Um, all these questions have been swirling about whether Netanyahu will use this change in the law to dismiss someone else as attorney general. Did he say to Steve whether he will? He did say that for the first time he said he will not dismiss the attorney general. It's not even it's not on the table and it won't happen. Now, this new law could actually help Netanyahu dismiss the attorney general or strip her of her powers. Her office oversees the prosecution of Netanyahu's corruption trial. He could replace her with someone more favorable who could dismiss his trial. And many members of Netanyahu's own government say they want her fired. I asked legal expert Mordechai Kremnitzer from the Israel Democracy Institute about Netanyahu's pledge to NPR that his law has nothing to do with the attorney general or his own corruption trial. And this legal expert says he doubts it. It's clear that it has to do with the trial of Netanyahu, as well as it has to do with the wish of this government to get rid of the rule of law. Daniel, as we said earlier, President Biden was urging Netanyahu not to do this, not to pass this law. He's done it anyway. How does Netanyahu justify that? Yeah, Biden was urging Netanyahu not to pass the law without broad consensus because of threats to Israel's security. Military reservists have threatened not to serve in protest of the law. Uh Netanyahu said it's not affecting our national defense. We're hearing actually a different tune from Israeli defense officials. Okie doke. NPR's Daniel Estrin, thank you. You're welcome. And we will hear more from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his interview with Steve on Morning Edition tomorrow. 
First, Russia wiped out Ukraine's navy. Now, Russia is blocking Ukraine's critical grain exports through the Black Sea. As Ukraine struggles to rebuild its navy and fight back, NPR's Greg Myrie got a ride on one of its few boats. I'm on a Ukrainian naval boat in the Dnipro River just off Kyiv. It's only 34 feet long and it carries just a few sailors, but it packs a punch. We have a machine guns, uh, we have a grenade launchers. Mihailo is a naval officer on board and like most military members, gives just one name. I would say that this is a classic uh, Riva patrol boat, one of those uh, you've seen in the uh, Francis Ford couple of movies. He says, think apocalypse now with an updated boat. The U.S. has provided about a dozen of these vessels because Russia seized or destroyed much of Ukraine's navy when it first invaded in 2014. Russia largely finished off the navy at the start of its full-scale invasion last year. Ukraine is starting to rebuild with these patrol boats. But Russia's control of the Black Sea means Moscow can keep Ukraine from exporting its abundant grain. And since July 17th, that's exactly what Russia's been doing. Here's the commander of Ukraine's Navy, Vice Admiral Alexei Nishpapa, speaking to sailors. We have to break Russia's control. The sea is free for everyone, and we will make it so, as it should be, free for all countries. Grain exports are critical to Ukraine's economy and to the food supply in countries throughout Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Without Ukraine's exports, global grain prices are on the rise. The Russians have threatened to sink these civilian bulk carriers. I believe that's egregious. James Fogo is a retired U.S. admiral. But what can you do about it when you don't have a significant naval presence in the Black Sea? That's a problem. It seems hard to believe now, but the Russian and Ukrainian naval fleets operated side by side in Crimea's port of Sevastopol from the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 until Russia seized Crimea in 2014. The following year, 2015, Fogo went to Ukraine for NATO-Ukrainian naval exercises in Odessa, Ukraine's other big Black Sea port. We tried to uh, assist the Ukrainians with rebuilding their navy. It was a big exercise. It grew to a very big exercise, very successful, lots of allies and partners. But when Russia invaded last year, Ukraine scuttled its last warship rather than risk it being captured by Russia. Like a knife to the heart, can you imagine a presidential order from President Zelensky to the commanding officer to scuttle the flagship of the Ukrainian Navy? That must have been really, really tough. He says Ukraine will never be free of Russian domination without some sort of Black Sea fleet. But it can't truly rebuild with the war ongoing. So Ukraine is resisting from land. Last year, a Ukrainian missile, fired from the mainland, sank the Russian flagship in the Black Sea, the Moskva. Again, Ukraine's naval chief, Vice Admiral Nish Papa. The Russian aggressor thought they could rule freely in the Black Sea, but they were wrong. Since then, Russia's navy has been wary of getting too close to the coast and Ukrainian missile range. This caution created enough space for Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky to venture out recently to Snake Island, a tiny outpost 20 miles off Ukraine's Black Sea coast. Zelensky made the risky trip in a small inflatable boat. His only apparent protection? A couple of other small inflatable boats. Back on the Dnipro River in Kyiv, the commander of the patrol boat, Anton, 
explains why he's here after 20 years on the high seas where he worked on massive commercial ships. I was just a merchant captain. I was a captain of a big vessel, bulk carrier. I was in the United States of America lots of time. His favorite place to work is Alaska, he says, summer or winter. Now, he only wants to be in Ukraine. I always can find a job. I can find other vessel, but I cannot find another motherland. I have only one Ukraine. So right here, right now, is the best place to be. Though it wouldn't hurt if Ukraine got some bigger boats. Greg Myrie, NPR News, on the Dnipro River in Ukraine. Millions of people tuned in last night to watch the U.S. play the Netherlands in the Women's World Cup. Some of those fans were gathered at a soccer bar in Portland, Maine, and reporter Carly Peruccio was among them. Dozens of people wait in line for drinks outside a bar called the Portland Zoo. Mark Miller is bartending. He's an owner here, and he's stunned by the size of the crowd. Yeah, this is one of those classic nights where you're like, ah, maybe it'll be Wednesday, it'll be chill. It won't be too crazy. And then you just get hit with like a three-hour line. <laughs> I mean, what's this is not your normal Wednesday, is that what I'm hearing? Not at all. And uh, once again, I'm always amazed at the women's World Cup turnout versus the men's off the opening games. I mean, how does this compare? Like double. This compares to like the like the final, like towards the finals of the World Cup. I don't know how to manage it. There are a lot of millennials here, a few Gen Zers sprinkled in. It's about an even split of women and men. Brian Plofsky is among the crowd. He's wearing a U.S. women's jersey. I think that there's something pretty special about the way that the teams work together and move. The flow of the game feels more like water, where the flow of a men's game is more like lightning. And I appreciate the flow of the water more. There are high expectations for the U.S. tonight. But in the 17th minute, Jill roared from the Netherlands' scores. There's some language not suitable for the radio. The U.S. is down one nothing. But I think they need to slow the game down. I think Erica Plofsky shakes her head in disappointment. And like they need to just like work with each other because it seems like they got into panic mode. Given that they're supposedly the number one team in the world, we should be playing better than this. That's Henry Trotter standing in the crowd. I don't know. There's still 30 minutes. We could we could do it. In the 61st minute, the U.S. wins a corner. <laughs> U.S. midfielder Rose Lavelle steadies herself for the kick. Jumped up on the table in front of me. That's Allison Murray. USA finally scored, and it was Lindsay Horan, and that is the jersey that I'm wearing. And it was a header, and it was gorgeous, and I loved it. As the clock ticks on, good chances become missed opportunities. When the U.S. is called for a foul, a fan makes an inappropriate gesture to the TV in frustration. In the end, the come-from-behind win wasn't meant to be. U.S. won, Netherlands won. The mood is disappointment, but not total despair. Oh, it's good. I'm glad we had, we got the comeback. Chris Barnes tied, knows Team USA's work isn't done. Tied. But now I have to wake up on Tuesday at 3 a.m. That's when the U.S. team takes on Portugal. At that hour, people probably won't be watching from the Portland Zoo. For NPR News, I'm Carly Peruccio in Portland, Maine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. The historic Dow rally ends at 13 days. Today, the index dropped nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P lost just about the same, and the Nasdaq fell a little over a half percent. Details coming up on Marketplace. It starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by View Boston, now open. A new experience atop the Prue with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views, featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. We've got a severe thunderstorm bearing down on the region now. The National Weather Service has extended its severe thunderstorm warning. It is now expiring at 7 o'clock tonight. There are some torrential rains around, 60-mile-an-hour wind gusts moving through the area. Uh, Radar indicated a severe storm over Dedham and Norwood in about the last 20 minutes. The storm is moving eastward about 40 miles an hour. The National Weather Service says the downpours could cause some flash flooding, so steer clear of that because it can be quite dangerous. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 12th. Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline. Embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at GoddardHouse.org. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. The Red Sox rest up to prepare for a West Coast road swing that begins tomorrow. It starts in San Francisco against the Giants. 85 degrees. Stay tuned to WBUR for updates on the forecast and the summer storm coming up. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. It can be hard to raise awareness for something that's often silent and looks healthy. Beginning workout. But for some boys and young men, that intense workout could be a sign of an eating disorder, masked behind muscle building. It's hard to quantify how prevalent this is, but here's one data point. A recent study of young men in Minnesota found that more than 50% reported changing their eating habits to increase muscle size or tone. Now, to be clear, not all of these men have an eating disorder, but researchers say some may go on to develop unhealthy behaviors related to diet and exercise. Jason Nagata is one of the authors of the study. I do think that it is a really fine line because in general, in moderation, physical activity and exercise can be good for your health, but there's a slippery slope where a subset of young men will really take it to the extreme Nagata is a pediatrician at the University of California, San Francisco, who specializes in eating disorders among adolescents. 
we actually know that uh, the idealized masculine body ideal is to become bigger and bulkier. And in order to achieve that, many of them are engaging in muscle-enhancing behaviors. Behaviors like strict dieting, compulsive exercise, use of steroids, all aimed at developing a lean, chiseled look like a professional athlete or a movie star. I used to love the Rocky films and, you know, all the, these kind of ideas of that's what a man's supposed to be. George Mycock's experience with eating disorders began in his early teens. He grew up 40 miles south of Manchester, England, and went out for rugby at age 13, hoping to make his sports-loving father proud. But he fractured his spine. He couldn't work out for a year. He gained weight and struggled with a lost sense of identity. And for the next five years, losing weight and putting on muscle became priority number one. What I found was that the more I lost weight, the faster I lost weight, the more praise I got from people. Uh, no one really cared how I was doing it. I was basically starving myself and exercising multiple times a day. Mike Hawk now says his diet and exercise regimen was unsustainable, and it took a toll on his mental health. He underwent treatment and is now working toward a Ph.D., focusing on men's physical and mental health. Andrea Vizana sees patients like George Mycock in her practice. She's a clinical psychologist at New York University who specializes in the treatment of eating disorders. And she says that for many years, eating disorders have been underdiagnosed in men. We used to think that there was about a 10 to 1 uh, female to male ratio. If you do population-based studies, you actually find that the prevalence is much closer, that it's really only about uh, one male to every two or three females. I asked her about the challenges she sees when it comes to working with boys and young men. You know, one of the things that we're always kind of working against is these stereotypes, these pressures that people from a sociocultural perspective are trying to overcome. The fact that people might actually get more positive attention from being muscular and having an athletic physique and that there are certain, you know, rewards that come along with that. But I think that, that what's oftentimes underestimated and, and might be neglected altogether are the costs that come along with trying to achieve that ideal and not only achieve it, but to maintain it over time. If you could, could you give us a couple examples of the types of short-term and long-range costs that you're talking about? Sure. Well, one of the short-term costs is uh, some of the social impairment that ends up happening, right? It becomes um, too fearful to go out and eat with your friends, that all your friends might be really enjoying each other's company at a restaurant. Uh, but for a person with an eating disorder, that would be a, a very difficult challenge, right? Um, there's likely job ramifications where you are tired and fatigued. You don't have that nutrition. And over time, that's going to take a toll on your work performance. It certainly will take a toll on your family life. If you're a male and you're not just focused on being thin, but also trying to be muscularly fit, it means going to the gym all the time, right? It means that you're spending time developing your muscles rather than developing your life. I want to ask you a little bit about patient volume. In recent years, are you seeing an increase of patients and particularly um, boys and young men who are coming in seeking treatment for eating disorders? Yes, I actually am. You know, COVID really was such a stressor. And the way that people tried to manage that was sometimes, you know, through these maladaptive behaviors and having more time. I've seen 
probably more men now than ever before. It's still a smaller number than the number of females that I'm seeing, but I have teenage boys. I have adult men. Uh, I definitely have a, a fair number of men more than I have ever had before. Well, why do you think that is that you're seeing more men than ever before? I, I mean, I find that striking to hear. Right. Well, I think that there's a better understanding of eating disorders. Um, we get a fair number of referrals from coaches who are concerned about their players um, who might be excessively exercising. And they just recognize, oh, this isn't just like a female disorder anymore, that actually men are, are susceptible to this as well. As you are treating men and boys with eating disorders, I'm curious, when you think about the population that you're interacting with, do you see disparities among the types of men and boys who are coming into your clinic and seeking help? Sure. I mean, that's tricky in, in that the clinic where I work, um, we're not in network with any insurance providers, mm. right? So Understood. the automatically, um, the population that I'm seeing is skewed towards uh, upper income, at least middle income with good insurance individuals, right? So in some ways, I might not be the best uh, person to speak to um, or maybe I am the best person to speak to about the disparities because, yes, I'm, I definitely see disparities in the type of people um, who I am treating. Uh, you know, we know that eating disorders affect all different races, all different ethnicities. Um, we know that high income, low income people, all of them are, are at risk for having eating disorders. It's just who is coming into the clinic. I understand that you've worked in this field for more than two decades. So I am just really curious. How has your experience treating patients with eating disorders changed over that span of time? Sure. The pressure that we see men under now um, to try to achieve this ideal has really increased. And I think, you know, social media has certainly played a role in that. I think it would be, that's undeniable to think that the fitness challenges, right, that are mm -hmm. on TikTok or um, on Instagram that you're seeing and the health challenges, um, you know, are are kind of increasing um, the importance that, that people are placing on their appearance, whether that's right or wrong. So really trying to push back against that and help people to not buy into that is a really important part of both prevention work as well as treatment. That's Andrea Vizana, psychologist and clinical co-director of the Eating Disorder Service at New York University. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Join the Radio Boston team this Wednesday, August 2nd at City Space for an evening exploring comic book culture. Meet local cartoonists, see their work, and take home some comic creations. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We've got a severe thunderstorm bearing down on the region right now. The National Weather Service has extended its severe thunderstorm warning until 7 o'clock tonight. Here's WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Well, severe thunderstorm warnings are focused south of Boston now. Some of these storms have had a history of producing damaging wind gusts, torrential downpours, localized flooding, frequent lightning, and small hail are likely too. So seek shelter inside if your city or town is under one of these warnings. The worst of the action is done for the city of Boston, though. There still may be some rain here and there. 
And lots of uh, thunder as well out there. Some intermittent rain, pretty dark clouds going on right now. Danielle Noy says tomorrow we should be clear of storms, but the heat will be oppressive in the low 90s with a heat index value of 95 to 100. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly, beginning August 4th. FranklinParkZoo.org.